What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 56 of the Hashishin, presented by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we get to hear from Fred Morris, based out of Colorado. We get to hear a little bit about what he's up to these days, including his continued passion in the art of cultivation. We also discuss what attracted him to hash and what his process of discovery was like regarding creating high-grade hash, including adapting the microplaning technique and much more. So definitely stay tuned for it. I want to give all the people who are part of the community of Patreon a huge thank you for all their support as their support allows me to continue doing this work. I could not do it without their support. So thank you again. If you ever can or want to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish inn through our Instagram bio at the hashish in or on our website, the hashishin.com. Shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests with the best ceiling carb caps in the game. Grab yours on Instagram at Zach Brown Glass or on his website, zachbrownglass.com. Also, a huge shout out to another big reason that we can keep the podcast rolling our awesome sponsors, including our friends and partners at Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. Who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. Whether you're looking for the best deal in hash in their high quality full mesh wash bags, which come in a variety of sizes from 5 to 55 gallons, or you're looking for the rosin bags trusted by makers all over the nation from micro batch to commercial producers you can find it all at rosinevolution.com where you can rely on their high-grade products as much as their stellar customer service and to save an additional five percent on your entire purchase while supporting the podcast use our savings code the letters thi the number 710 again thi 710 altogether saves you five percent at rosin evolution while supporting the podcast Shout out to our sponsors, one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro, who you can visit at toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at toro underscore glass, where you'll find a variety of high-end glass rigs and tubes, including their nano rigs and cyclers. It's also where you'll find their original slurpers or more recent creation, Toro's Terp slides and Terp tasters, as well as a variety of accessories, including marbles and millies. So no matter where you are in the world, if you appreciate functional glass art with an emphasis on function and artistic design, then visit our homies Toro at toroglassgallery.com or again on Instagram at toro underscore glass. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Hashhead Outfitters, who you can follow on Instagram at Hashhead Outfitters or their website, hashheadoutfitters.com, where they specialize in comfortable gear for hash lovers. Whether you're looking for a cozy hoodie in a variety of stylish colors made of responsibly sourced 100% cotton, or you're looking for a hashy gift for a friend, they have a variety of apparel, hats, and accessories, including a recent slipper set collaboration with glass artist Grow. You can grab the gear that makes you feel extra cozy with that dab at hashheadoutfitters.com or again on their Instagram at hashheadoutfitters. 
Again, a special thank you to Zach Brown Glass for providing all the guests this year with my favorite card caps, his V2 series. It's the only cap that I use. And if you want to make your dabs that much more efficient, you can grab yours at ZachBrownGlass.com or on Instagram at ZachBrownGlass. I appreciate you listening and I really hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 56 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shirag Mamir. Today, I'm beyond excited to be here with Fred Morris. You can follow him on Instagram, at Fred Morris. What's up, man? How are you? I appreciate you taking the time to come on. I'm doing quite well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. It was nice meeting you at Coffee and Donuts Denver earlier this year. It almost seems like it was last year, but it was earlier this year. And like I've told you, I've really enjoyed your personality and your sense of humor is cool and you seem really down to earth. So I've been wanting to make this happen for a little bit. So I'm finally glad that we're getting a chance to and I know you're quite busy with it being harvest season and processing season. So again, thank you for taking the time and I look forward to chatting with you about a variety of things. Well, thank you for having me and also for considering me for coffee and donuts too. I was a bit surprised because I had been pretty quiet on the scene for some time, but it was great to go out there, see people and talk to a lot of people who seem to have remembered me, which, you know, that was, that was kind of heartwarming. So thank you for having me out there. Yeah, of course. It's so cool to connect people like that. And those alive events, a lot of times end up being that. And it's really cool to not only meet people for the first time, but like you're saying, sometimes meet people that you've been in communication with for some time. And like you mentioned, I know you used to be a lot more active on social media and in the recent years, not so much. And funny enough, uh, you know, it was been a couple of years now since Kaya was on here, but when I asked him who he'd like to see on the podcast, one of the people he mentioned was you. He's like, I like to see what Fred Morris is up to. Where is Fred Morris? So it's funny that you bring up that you haven't been as active on social media the last few years. So maybe we start there and you can tell us, you know, what you've been up to since then and maybe be also why you haven't had such a presence on social media. Well, the reason I haven't been as active on social media would probably be kind of twofold. One of which is I feel like social media just got to be too much of a toxic place, a little just too weird for me at times. Things getting derailed, lots of trolling and stuff that just wasn't necessary to the uh, conversation. But then also uh, just in general, honestly, I guess part of it is that the hash war was more or less one. I didn't, I didn't really think about that. That's interesting. So one of my whole big goals was to shoot down BHO at the time. And it's not because I think BHO can't be done right. It absolutely can in a laboratory, in a safe setting with the right equipment and talented operators who are doing everything right. It can be done right. But at the time that was being done in sheds and people were blowing themselves up and going to burn wards and things like that. And that made me really nervous. I wasn't a big fan of it. So uh, one of my goals with my memes and pushing ice water hash as a method for people to do at home, you know, if you're a home grower, if you're some kid who wants to make a concentrate, for God's sake, don't go get vector in a glass tube, you know, do this. It's safe. It's effective. The equipment's not that expensive. You know, you make a mistake doing this, you're not going to burn to death. And uh, I saw a lot of that drop off, actually. And and Ice Water Hash actually, and specifically once Rosin hit the scene, kind of pushed BHO out as being the hotness, you know, the thing that everybody wanted to do, especially at home. 
the artistry in doing that was kind of more prized than doing it through solvents. And, and to some degree, I guess I feel like we kind of won and I, I could like set my sword down, if that makes sense. Because I wasn't hearing about, you know, 16-year-old kids getting their faces melted off every other day and sheds getting lit on fire and even professional extraction labs getting blown up because people weren't doing that correctly. So to some degree, that was one of the reasons I backed off of social media too. But just in general, I didn't feel didn't feel the need to to push it as much propaganda wise. <laughs> to be honest with you, push the ice water and rocks and thing because I felt like we had kind of won. Yeah, that's interesting because it's been a while, and like you said, there have been some kind of big shifts in the scene, whether it's about cannabis oils or just cannabis in general. And I'm curious, like on that note, how do you feel about having gone through that time and being, for example, a proponent of something that maybe at the time wasn't the most popular? And like you said, through the variety of shifts, including rosin, now it suddenly has become one of the most popular cannabis concentrates versus hydrocarbons and their popularity in the past. Well, I think there was a lot of little pieces to that puzzle. You know, and it, it might just be me having a big head. You know, I, I try and stay humble, but little parts and pieces like the propaganda, the memes, everything I could do to make it not cool to blow yourself up in your backyard, so to speak, to try and get people paying attention to this product. But major advancements in the ability to produce it, to ensure dabability, to make it commercially viable, to do it through food grade instruments and things. Everybody who's played a little bit of a piece in that deserves some credit, you know, soil grown, talking about wrapping it up in a screen and squeezing it hot, you know, put just putting it out there. The people who are making various different stainless steel washing machines so that it's actually being done food grade or at least as close to a medical standard as we can. It's not something that I feel like like I I missed out on or anything like that. It's I'm, I'm proud of everybody and where we're at with it. And I'm really glad that it is where it is now. And I enjoy, I still enjoy doing it myself and even doing it the old way with the microplane and everything. I'm just amazed at how far we come and how people, how open people are with the technique too. And to be part of a community where you can, because if, if you are a BHO guy and you go online and you tell people, Hey, here's how you do this and that you're always taking that risk that the guy's going to light himself on fire you know, like you can you can light a fire for a man and keep him warm for a night or light him on fire and keep him warm for the rest of his life. And that's sometimes what you accidentally do, teaching BHO. But everybody's just sharing the techniques and, and the and the how-tos. And it, it's a beautiful thing to see. Really glad to see that. Grateful to everybody who is willingly open about it. That was one of my favorite things about the ice water hash and now also rosin communities is the willingness that people have to put things out there. Do you feel like in part that's been a large part of the puzzle? Like you said, is this sharing of information and the willingness to do so, to be able to push the scene further or maybe not the scene necessarily, but just the development of these processes? Oh, absolutely. From it being on more and more shelves and that product being actually something worth talking about, to people being able more so to do it at home, the equipment being accessible for people to use at home, the techniques, both on the commercial and on the private level. The advent of the 
use of freeze dryers and just everything, seeing that come forward has really helped to make it more accessible, both for the consumer and for anybody wanting to make it on a commercial or home level. And of course, the more people with their hands on it, the more advents and changes, little variables you're going to see put into place. So, you know, I'm, I'm 100% into it and I'm still out here watching it myself too. There's some people out there I watch and think, damn, I, I got to try that out. That looks different. I'm into it. Speaking of BHO, did you ever have any experience? Did you ever do some of the open blasting just to try it out at first? I'm going to fully admit that yes, I did. I 100% have open blasted before. I've also seen passive closed loop and active closed loop and participated in those. Um, I've done CO2 extraction, ethanol extraction, uh, steam distillation, a bunch of different types of extraction. So there was a lot of people back in the day, especially, I think, that were anti-BHO and didn't have the experience with it or anti-solvent extract and didn't have the experience with it. And I, uh, I wanted to understand why I didn't like it as much as I didn't. So having the experience with these multiple forms of extraction, let's call them, what is it about raw hash or raw extracts that appeal to you versus these other forms? whether it is BHO, like you said, CO2, et cetera? Well, I, guess, I suppose the fact that it, it's unaltered in the sense of it hasn't had any kind of chemicals dance with it. It hasn't had the chance for carbon atoms to jump off of this little molecule onto that one. It hasn't, in that sense, been stepped on in my mind. And the whole justification for cannabis in my mind was that, at least medical, when it first came off, was that it was a safe, natural, at-home medicine that you can't overdose on, that doesn't have chemicals to it, that grandma can produce at home in her garden for her glaucoma, for example. You know, that that was why it was supposed to be legal. Six plants a person or so, extended plant counts, and you could pick it up at a dispensary if you were incapable of producing it for yourself. Now, when you start mixing solvents into that, that, that kind of takes some of that away because it's not, not necessarily the safest, most natural medicine that grandma can make for herself at home. But with something like ice water hash, specifically back in the day, because that's, that's what we had. We, this was pre-rosin, or at least the commercial production of rosin. It was the safest way to do it at home. It was that kitchen tech, what I like to call, and less laboratory tech. And that's what I loved about it, to put the power into the people's hands. So if you were going to grow those six plants, you were going to have some trim. And you might very well have some failed plants too if you're new at it. So what do you do? You know, you're going to jump in your backyard next to your AC unit with a tube and blast some butane. Please, to God, don't. You know, get get some bags, get some buckets, get a spoon. It's not that hard. You can do it. You know, then that's what I that's what I really liked about it back in the day. And what really drew me to it was the fact that it was in keeping with the justification of the legalization of cannabis in the first place. And how do you feel like that's developed over time, like this legalization playing out in Colorado, since you've been there pretty much since the time they went medical and you have talked about, for example, the home growing a few times, but also, you know, going into what you are doing currently, it's not necessarily cultivating on that scale, but commercially. So how have you seen all these different laws play out and how that's changed over time within the state? 
Oh, I don't know if I actually got to touch on that, but yes, I am uh, been commercially cultivating since 2009 on and off at times I have made hash professionally, but majority cultivation since I went quiet basically on social media, but man, to ask about the legalization of things in Colorado, whoo, uh, oh, um, so when we were first popped off medical, right, there, there was something magical and special about it. I, I'm not going to lie. There were horrible things like people could use chemicals like myclobutanol and paclobutrazole and pyromethacin and all the nasty aminoclopride. So neonicotinoids and chemicals that if you heat them to temperatures of 300 degrees or so, they start turning into weapons of war we could use on cannabis and it was awful. There was no regulations even towards the people applying it. You know, put a dust mask on and some long sleeve shirts and wash wash your hands when you're done kind of thing. But there was something magical about it. At the same time, we could really push boundaries, pop seeds, do all kinds of fun things. Testing came in and overall it was good, but the labs themselves don't maybe get regulated like they should. And that's that's kind of always been the case. So you're always at the whim of these labs that are questionable and, you know, have historically, I'm not going to, you know, throw shade can labs on anybody, but there's been insider trading and things like that, can labs. And it's it's tough, you know, the, the taxation of it has made it hard for a lot of companies to be profitable, but there are a lot of people who would hopefully try to make money off of companies that are producing that still think that those companies are making substantial amounts of money. When in reality, you know, anywhere from 30 to 40% of your capital is going straight out as taxes. You don't really have, you don't have a lot of money to play with in these industries at times. That makes it, that has made it somewhat tough to produce overall for a lot of companies out here. And there have been substantial fluctuations too. And not just the standard ones you'd expect, such as greenhouse and outdoor getting harvested right around this time of the year and causing pound prices to tank. but just things like COVID shutdowns and everything else making it really complicated to run businesses. It's hard to keep up with all of the companies that disappear and reappear at times in Colorado because of that. But it was fun being an essential employee when they said, if you work in weed, you're essential. Boy, I felt like a superhero. That was pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, that was something you brought up last time. And I was kind of laughing because I never really thought about it in that sense because I'm not necessarily involved in that way. So it really is funny to think that during that whole not so great pandemic, there were people who were essential workers and cannabis workers were one of them, including yourself. Yeah, police and firemen and EMS and and your local dope man, because they they did not want to lose out on that tax revenue during that time. No, sir. So, yeah, we were out running the streets, all of us weed people. It It was funny. You'd go to a restaurant somewhere near one of the grows or a place where there's a lot of dispensaries and the only people who would be picking up like carry out and things like that would be Grubhub drivers and people wearing badges. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, speaking of taxation, I mean, you brought up earlier the high taxation on cannabis companies or you know lack of being able to do write-offs and all these laws that kind of constrict these businesses to not being able to be very profitable or do things the proper way. One thing you brought up to me last time was that this in part drives people to have to remediate, for example, in cases where you can't lose crops at this point because of all these restrictions. Everything has to be used 
uh, whether it's how it's supposed to be or not. Yeah, that's often the case. A lot of a lot of companies' margins are so slim, and there's there's things I think companies could do, and the industry would kind of have to accommodate it, like not spending as much money on packaging. And I think a lot of people can agree with that. But in practice, we all see that shiny packaging on the shelf. We want to buy it. They're going to keep using it, you know. But there are there are a lot of situations where companies just can't make enough money to where if they have failed crops. Those crops need to bring them some kind of money. And I, I mean, I, this is coming from someone who's worked in the industry. And if you don't want, if you, if you like certain products, you might want to cover your ears right now. But a lot of your distillate cartridges and a lot of your edibles are made out of failed crops. And, and that's just how it is. And I, I hate to say it, but I don't, I can't blame the companies because they can't take a loss. If we were growing corn or soy, we could write off losses. Hell, they'd pay us to, to plant them some years, especially if we were picking the right kind of corn or soy to grow. But because it's cannabis and it's taxed to death and we can't get any kind of help from a lot of different professional loaning agencies or write-offs and things like that, you see products that should go to waste and would in any other agricultural setting end up needing to be turned into something that can make some profit. And that's unfortunate to see. Yeah, it almost sounds like a necessary evil if you want to be able to stay afloat as a cannabis company in Colorado. Like I said, not necessarily because you want to, but because things turn out that way. But yeah, that's interesting about the edibles and the carts. You know, I don't think necessarily people are always thinking about where this is coming from. And sometimes I think there's also an assumption that because it's coming through either the legal or the medical market, it's, you know, going through all these things where you can't get products that come from something that has been remediated or whatnot. I mean, it, it can have gone through a lot of things. The, the overwhelming majority of cannabis, at least flower cannabis that's consumed in this state, I'm going to say this too. I don't know if a lot of people want to hear this. It's irradiated. I mean, everybody's putting their stuff and there's companies that do it contracted. They take in flour and they irradiate it and send it back to the company that provided it to them. It creates more overhead on the product. It's, I mean, in a lot of people's opinions, denaturing the product a little bit. Like you can get a product that is by certain standards safe or safer professionally, but that doesn't always mean that it is not going to be stepped on in some way, shape or form. Just like, you know, you can get whole milk from the dairy farmer and you take a couple risks, but man, that is, that might be some, some nice milk right there. (laughs) You know what I mean? Whereas you get it from the store, sometimes it's been through a filter and it, it, it was blue and then got back added with this, that, and the other to make it look like milk again. This process that you just brought up, what is it? Because I've actually never heard of it. The process that they're putting the flowers through. Oh, really? Okay. Um, so it's it's usually called like a rad source or something to do with radiation because it is essentially irradiating the material. So one of the ways that people used to get around testing back in the day, so here's some here's some more inside baseball. I'm going to spill all the beans. People used to just put the weed in the microwave and usually use defrost settings so it would get pulsed in the microwave for short, relatively short periods of time, bag it up into as sterile of a container as they can or even microwave it in a relatively sterile container and then send it off for testing because microwave radiation can help sterilize material. And they, of course, you know, they might pass, but the majority of the crop wouldn't have gone through that. Now, just so people understand, too, that the microbial testing for cannabis 
is ridiculously un- unpassable in the state of Colorado. Your your uh, your eyebrows would probably fail for it. A piece of fruit at the grocery store would fail for it. A spoon out of the drawer in your kitchen would probably fail for it. It's not realistic. But what they test for is living mold or bacteria or yeast microbes. And they do that through usually an agar test. So they just swab it against some agar and watch for anything to grow. Now, these some of these bacteria and fungi are, are omnipresent. They're everywhere. You, they're in the Arctic ice. You know what I mean? You just can't get away from them. Some of them do present some dangers, but a lot of the dangers that they present are aflatoxins and mycotoxins, which can still be present if those living bodies aren't present. And also they can be present in extracts and concentrates made from those materials, even if those mold bodies aren't present. In fact, they can even be concentrated into them. But by microwaving or gamma radiating and X-ray radiating your material, you can kill those mold and fungal and bacterial bodies to where they won't make it into uh, the end product. So you can do that to the product. You can seal it up. You can package it, whatever you want to do. Send some of it off for testing and it'll pass the test. There'll be no living mold or fungal bodies on it because your material has effectively been sort of denatured. It's been zapped to where anything that might have been alive in it or on it no longer is. And again, while you don't want a lot of that in your cannabis, it's on basically everything. And what you're really concerned with are the chemical byproducts that a lot of those produce that can have kind of more of the consequences that you wouldn't want to your health. Kind of like if you ate some rotten fruit or something to that effect. Yeah, that's interesting. Like I said, I hadn't heard of that. So that's new to me and and surely new to some people listening as well. So I appreciate you sharing that. Oh, that's no problem. In fact, there's some talk, I believe, uh, about making it regulations that a company has to inform their purchasing clientele, whether that's customers or patients, whether or not the product has been irradiated prior to them getting their hands on it. And while I don't necessarily think that's a bad idea, I think a lot of the proponents of it don't realize how much additional expense that's going to now add on to an already overly expensive and taxed product. Just increasing the amount of labor, the labeling, everything else that needs to go into producing these products. And as somebody who works inside, I can tell you too, it's it's usually just a safe bet to assume that it was, unless you're smoking or eating something that went through an already remediating process, potentially, like a distillate or something to that effect that the state has determined kills all those mold and bacteria just by nature of the process itself. So since I answered the question that I presented myself for you uh, and you know brought up that you're cultivating now, you just mentioned that you are still currently working in the industry. Tell us a little bit more about what you're up to in the realm of cultivation these days. Well, lately I've been working at, uh, I'm, I'm going to try and avoid naming names, but I have been working at a relatively small place. Kind of reminds me of the first place that I worked at in the industry. Relatively small, well-controlled grow, large pots, hand-watering everything, really being able to give individual care and attention to the plants, which which is a big relief to me. I've worked at some places that were great big Tyson chicken farm slaughterhouses, and I've worked at a place or two like this. And the latter is definitely what I would prefer. It, it enables me to apply myself, my knowledge, my skills, and actually 
kind of care about the plants on us, at least somewhat more individual level. From the beginning too, growing was what I got into in this industry right out of the gate. And it's one of the things that really pushed me towards hash making was watching some of the material that I'd grow get turned into unacceptable BHO. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) So that's one of the things that drove me into making hash was just growing and having a love for the plant and feeling like hash was one of the pinnacle presentations of the plant. So it's always been something where I'd loved participating in both the growing and the hash making. But I didn't feel like we needed to tell people to stop, like growers to stop lighting themselves on fire. Which is why, which is why I kind of went so hard on the uh, the social media for ice water hash. So it's curious to me then why you've decided to continue, for example, with the cultivation. And although you still are processing, it's not, for example, your main line of work. Why so? Well, to some degree, being able to find a place where I can really make hash and have control over the process has been somewhat difficult. There's a lot of people who would not put the attention into the necessary quality of material that it takes to make hash and present that forward for hash making. Like we were talking about trying to remediate failed crops and things like that. You you just can't cannot do that with raw concentrates, which is what attracts me to them, honestly. And another reason is just the raw passion that I have for hash and hash making. There's a there's a certain artistry to it. There's an attention to detail on an individualized basis that I feel like has to be there in order for it to be done right. In general, too, I guess one of the things I really enjoy about hash making is just doing it on a personal level for growers on a that I know and being able to turn back their trichomes to them and show them what they did, how well they did, and the look on people's faces sometimes. And just just the ability to offer that service on a private level is often a bit more rewarding than doing it on a commercial level at times, I suppose. Are there challenges to working within a commercial setting in something like cultivation, even though you love doing it? Oh, absolutely. A lot of the the grows, I, I can't just walk into a grow that somebody else built and tell them how it's going to be done. You know, you're always walking into a set of circumstances, some of which would be good. And I've learned quite a bit working for different companies and under different circumstances. Uh, so I do always go into it with an open mind. But it is it is difficult because at times, especially having grown commercially since 2009, walking into certain circumstances, and there's, there's still people who are new to the industry, relatively new at least, and I say that and that that means, you know, half of the people in it right now, (laughs) but there are still people who are new to it and have, have big ideas about how certain things work or how it can be done commercially. And it doesn't, doesn't always pan out. Or I have, I have some methods I'd like to bring to the table, but because it's not my, not my kitchen, you know, I'm, I'm just a chef in it. I can't always, I can't always make large strides like I might be tempted to. And it's understandable, but if you if you're careful about it, and if what you're saying and doing is correct, you can turn little dials at a time, and definitely steer a grow in the right direction. That actually that challenge can actually be pretty fun, whereas walking into maybe a broken hash situation is is just soul crushing for me. <laughs> but there are definitely challenges to working in grows. There there are places where it just feels like a big slaughterhouse. I've worked at places where they turn your pockets out and uh, 
you know, search you at random on your way in and out and treat everybody like they're guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Oh, uh, there were, there was times when hemp temps would come in and out of places with bags on their heads and stuff. We were hearing stories about this, like really like taking blackout vans to the job site with a, a uh, what the hell? So there are definitely challenges to working in grows. I would, I would say don't not do it, but don't go into it expecting you're going to get rich being a commercial grower in Colorado and uh, feel free to be picky because there are a lot of them out there and some of them will treat you well. Some of them are good, healthy environments and there's plenty of them that aren't. And it sounds like also be ready to compromise a little bit or a lot of it in some cases where, you know, you might have the experience and the know-how and possibly be able to do it better per se. But at the same time, you have to realize that you're coming into, like you're saying, someone else's system. And it sounds like maybe gradually you can contribute and possibly maybe help steer them in the right direction. But it does sound like it's a slower process than just being able to come in and you know make massive changes, like you said. Oh, yeah. And I've definitely seen people who, you know, kicked in the door and tried to walk in and be, you know, the the chief superstar and you know, swing it around real hard and it doesn't, it usually doesn't go well in general. So that can be one of the, one of the challenges, especially a lot of the commercial growing in Colorado is, is going to be hydro. A lot of people are growing on, you know, stall plast tables with grow dan blocks or just doing, doing methods that as people in the hash community, we tend to not be big fans of, you know, you may have people in in your audience that don't necessarily know or do or do know, but there there is a difference when processing high quality organic soil grown with care material versus bulk salty hydro. It, there just is. Uh, I think hydro can be done well, and I'm not totally putting it down. But as a hash guy, you just want you just want to grow plants for their trichomes. And you don't always get to do that. You do have to grow some vegetables too, just to put weight on the table. <laughs> In your current situation, you mentioned doing pots and, and hand watering. So I'm assuming that you're doing some kind of soil medium? Uh, it's a soilless, technically. Yeah, it's a soilless blend. But it, it's about as close as you can get, unfortunately. Are some of the genetics that you guys are running in that situation currently for hash or are these mostly all dedicated for dry flower? Uh, it's strictly wholesale flower, but I do keep my eyes open for genetics that may or may not perform well in uh, concentrate. I actually been thinking about getting one of those resin dials because it is something that uh, even ownership is somewhat curious in any kind of data you can collect off your plants, even if it's something that you're not currently doing is valuable data. So things like, even just scoping things with a loop or doing a basic jar test or resin dial, anything like that is valuable data. And I am working with some genetics by breeders that have a reputation for either breeding for hash production or they themselves are just hash fanatics and things. So it it is something that I definitely always keep an eye on. I, I can't not grow with an eye like a hash maker, you know? I, I sometimes don't really care about the flower. I look at the trikes on it more. Ooh, you know, look at all that surface area. Look at those tacos on those leaves. Mm, you know. <laughs> in, in regards to home growing, are you still doing that as well? Or is it just mostly in this commercial setting at this point? 
I do, but I live in a relatively small place that doesn't really permit me to do a whole lot of blooming except on a fairly small experimental level. That and I'm, I've just been so busy all the time within a regular schedule that really tending to a home production like that might be a bit difficult. But I do uh, grow f- for the purpose of keeping some genetics on hand, a sort of uh, genetic bank, if you will. So I, I mother plants up, I clone off of them, I throw away or donate the mom to somebody, which I did quite a bit this last spring, which has now caused me to have a very, very busy harvest season. Uh, so doing that can have benefits, one of which you give clones or moms out, people come back to you and want you to make hash for them, or you just keep genetics around that perform really well in hash for the purpose of making sure the people you work with or you yourself have genetics that you know are going to produce. That That is one of the handiest things. Trying to learn how to make hash and holding low yields against yourself when you're working with bad genetics is something that will definitely hold you back. Having genetics that wash easily, that aren't too tacky to deal with when you're learning how to do it, um, that yield high in the wash, that cultivate relatively easily too, because that's still going to be a factor in how well they produce for you in hash. All these things are going to make a big difference in the success of your outcome. So being able to do that's been very handy. Uh, And even just being able to do that so that I can serve as a nexus between people who I do make hash for. You know, grower A has a nice strain. Grower B has a nice one. They don't want to meet each other. Doesn't matter. They can mix and match. Um, You know, hey, I got a six percenter. You want that? Sure. You know. Uh, grower B's got a 6.5% or you want to swap for that? Good deal. So don't put down even just growing at home in a small propagation tent. If you're a hash maker, genetics are one of the most valuable things you can have. And being able to help your growers out by providing them with genetics will be rewarding to you 100%. Yeah, that's an interesting juxtaposition between your work at the commercial facility and them focusing strictly on flower and then you're at home, not necessarily, you know, with a big thing going on because of your space limitation, but you are keeping genetics that are specific for hash. So it's kind of intriguing how you get to have a little bit of both worlds in that sense. And I'm curious, just like you kind of go through the process of trying to obtain these genetics and like you're saying, being able to give those to growers that then later come back to you as processor as well, how does the company that you currently work for go through their genetics for flower? Is it kind of a similar thing where they're looking for certain characteristics similar to how you're looking for things like surface area and trichome production? Oh, absolutely. The qualifications are different. For hash, I could make do with something that produces tons of popcorn, like completely untrimmable garbage. And that would be just fine. That could be lots of surface area for me to harvest trichomes off of. So exotic, weird stuff, uh, land race stuff that you would never want to grow commercially. And if you put in a trim bin, you'd be out of your mind. (laughs) Can be viable uh, for hash production. But when you're looking for a commercial flower strain, you definitely need a few different things. And one of which is clonability. So a big mistake I've seen a lot of commercial trying to run, you know, a a from seed genetic and flower out the seed plants and phenotype based on that. You need to phenotype from clone. 
to see how well the thing clones and to see how they're actually going to, you know, how they're going to perform under your normal production schedule. So not just what their clone success rate is, because you might have some fire and that's awesome. But once that from seed plants done and your clones are dead in the tray, that was the last run of it you had. But also how well do they perform post cloning? Because a from seed plant versus your clone plants are going to perform differently. It needs to have disease resistance is a big thing in commercial grows. That's always going to be a factor. Um, how well does it resist things that, you know, large grow rooms can sometimes be prone to, like fungal infections and things like that? How does it grow within your system? Do you have a grow with short ceilings, tall ceilings? Do you have HPS with deep canopy penetration? Do you have some really nice LEDs, but you don't want to grow a five-foot deep canopy? You might not want too lanky of a plant. But then, of course, some of the things that you would definitely expect play a big role in it, like overall mass production, dry mass, usable flower, too, is something that I think gets overlooked. People just look at wet harvest weights and overall dry mass. But, you know, a popcorn factory to a, a flower wholesaler does not do, do you any good. That's just a lot of labor. So a lot of factors that go into it um, for commercial flower sales. But the biggest ones would probably be yieldability, propagatability, and uh, disease resistance. High test results, because unfortunately right now it's it's getting better, but that is still what a lot of people at the shelf really care about is what tests the highest. Makes me sad, but that's how it is. And that maybe for someone who doesn't listen to the podcast a lot, you're referring to percentages like THC, for example, I'm assuming. Oh yeah, absolutely. Some some people go to the shelf thinking when when you buy flour, what you want is the THC. And it's true, if there wasn't any of that in it, you probably wouldn't be buying it. You do need to have that in it. But the terpene content or the smells and flavors and things of the flour and just, you know, eat with your eyes. So it does it look nice. I, I like a purple bud. I like buds with nice, big, shiny trichomes on the outside and things like that. Those don't always actually test the highest. So don't don't just please to God don't just purchase based on uh, test results and you, you you can find some weed that you'll love you'll absolutely love going by your nose if you're able to smell it you know follow your nose like Toucan Sam don't don't buy percentages yeah and that's interesting in itself because depending where you go it's kind of different you know as a consumer when you go into dispensaries in some states you can smell them in other states. It's like these kind of weird jars where you can kind of smell them. So it's a challenge as a consumer too, but it is interesting that over the last several years, there definitely seems to be the shift in perception that percentages aren't everything and specific percentages, like you're saying, you know, there are things like terpenes that are indicators of how your body could interact or react to it. So yeah, we'll, we'll see kind of how things go from there, but it is interesting to think that that plays a role into the selections as well, because at the end, that's part of the consumer experience, I suppose. Yeah, and I think I kind of touched on it earlier, but I, I sometimes trust lab results like I trust politicians and meteorologists like I just I kind of don't. So, you know, and there's there's what I, you could probably tell me better. You've had some really smart people on your podcast. How many cannabinoids are there now? And when you look at the label, they're showing you maybe four. So I don't know. You know, there's a lot more to it than just that. So kind of switching topics, but staying on the same. Going back to characteristics that you're looking for in hash plants. So, you know, you just talked to us a little bit about 
what you're looking for, for example, in a commercial flower setting. You mentioned trichomes, you mentioned surface area. What are some other things that you're looking for in genetics? And you mentioned percentages, you know, the the 6%, the 6 plus percent. So Mm -hmm. what are things that you're looking for in genetics to keep around for hash, whether it's for yourself or whether it is to pass along to other cultivators? Well, there's there's definitely some completely different qualifications than there is for commercial flower. So I'm I'm really concerned with the trichomes when it comes to how they perform in hash production. Even before testing it uh, in water or with the resin dial, there are certain things you can observe. Like, does it have relatively long stalks? Because sessile or basically trichomes that form almost flush to the plant surface, stalkless trichomes or sessile trichomes tend to not slough off of the plant material very easily. Those tend to be low yielding. So I have one, I have a uh, Blackwater OG. It doesn't, it's not fully Cecile, but a lot of the trichomes actually have pretty short stalks. Now I keep it because I love this plant. It's, it's beautiful, beautiful plant for flower. But just because of that factor, it doesn't tend to wash very well. Now, another thing you'd be watching out for is nice big fat trichome heads because that is what you're trying to select for with your washes, with your ideal microns that you might be pressing into rosin or keeping for full melt, the big fat heads are what you want. Nice quality stout heads, specifically within your frame of harvest. So if you can only take your your plants to eight weeks, you need a strain that's going to give you fat trichome heads by week eight. If you can take your strains a little bit longer, you might have a little bit more leeway with that. But I generally look for size of trichome heads. And then another thing that this isn't always make or break, but how dry or sticky wet are your trichomes? Now, a lot of people will tell you if trichomes are too sticky, that you're going to get a low yield. And that can definitely be true, especially if your material preparation is not very quality or they're getting rough handled when they're harvested or they're getting overhandled while they're on the plant. But if you can keep conditions absolutely cold, sometimes those sticky ones, as hard as they are to work, are definitely highly rewarding. They may yield a little bit lower than some of the sandier or chalkier trichome feeling plants, but on the press, they can yield higher. They can have a lot of sauce and soup to them once they are pressed into rosin. So these aren't necessarily strains that I say no to. The other thing too is that a lot of those strains while grown indoors are almost too sticky to handle or provide a very high challenge when grown indoors to handle in hash. Grown outdoors, they actually handle a lot easier and they still provide you with a somewhat oilier hash than you might get with a drier kind of trichome grown outdoors. So a drier trichome, what I mean by that is one where if you were to rub your finger across the plant, it leaves almost a grit feel. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with those for hash making. In fact, those can be a little bit easier to get a complete yield on. They can provide relatively large yields in hash. But sometimes when being made into rosin, they can actually yield at a slightly lower ratio than those sticky, oily strains. And of course, a sticky, oily strain would be one where if you were to rub your finger across the plant where it's trichome rich later in bloom, it almost leaves kind of a Vaseline or like spirit goo kind of texture to to your fingers. It's like slippery almost. 
those sticky trichomes can be prone to getting plant material or vascular fluid impregnated into them. They can be prone to getting damaged or fused with one another or oxidized prior to them even going into your wash. But if you can handle them carefully or sometimes grown outdoors, those sticky ones are definitely worth running. Also, like I said, though, those dry trichomes, not the worst, but there are times like Bubba Kush, for example, the katsu cut that tends to go around everywhere here in Colorado. Trichomes are just too dry. It can yield reasonably well, but almost every time I've washed it, the results, especially pressing into rosin, have been a little lackluster. And I would attribute that to a thicker wax coating to the outside of the trichome itself. So certain plants have evolved to have a little bit more wax or a little thicker or denser or higher temp wax to the outside of them, just based usually on their parentage. Maybe it evolved somewhere tropical where it needed to defend against wild humidity swings. So it's a little waxier on the outside, like a, like a palm or something might be, you know, it produces a lot of that, uh, like steer in wax to the outside of it. If that's the case, you're probably going to have a thicker or more substantial type of waxy coating to even the trichomes, not just the surface of the plant. So while that can be easier to wash off of the plant, at times that can also produce not as well in the press, I find. So I, I don't always take that as a sign. But though that is definitely one of the more nuanced qualities that I'm looking for in regard to hash genetics. So this sticky wet or oily quality that you're calling it, you're seeing, you know, if you're able to process it right at the right temperature, you know, get through all these hurdles that you could face because of the quality of the resin, it can be more rewarding. And part of that is because you feel those essentially contain more oil than waxes. And that's why in part they're doing well in the press as well. Yeah, I would say so. And just the right kind of terpenes, because a lot of people will tell you, and they're not wrong, that terpenes act as solvents during a lot of these hash making processes for us. So it is a non-solvent process, but terpenes have solvent properties, right? So these are the kind of heavier stick around sort of terpenes that seem to do a really good job of breaking things down or causing some of that separation that we're looking for with things like cold curing a jar of rosin and things like that. These are the kind of terpenes that you're really looking for, too, if you want to make regular old-fashioned full melt that looks just what we used to call back in the day greasy or juicy, the, the stuff that just turns into almost marmalade at pocket temperature after, you know, just coming out of the fridge, sitting in your pocket 15 minutes, you pull it out, and it just looks almost like fresh press rosin. That's the kind of strain that you need in order to produce that kind of quality as well. So I, I never turn them down. There's one I've been working with a lot lately, Gary Payton. I know that's probably old hat for a lot of people at this point, but man, what a what a oily one. And as a guy who microplanes instead of uh, you know freeze drying, oh, is it hard to work with? Oh my god, making sure that you prepare strains like that in advance, very carefully too, using flash freezing techniques instead of just stuffing bags and throwing them in a freezer very critical to getting a good performance out of those. But I still find it to be worthwhile. Yeah, I actually got to try a little bit of your Gary Payton through Adam at, from Denver. So it was really good. And yeah, that's interesting to think that that has that quality of resin and you know that you enjoy working with it, although it is challenging. It makes me think similar to the Starburst OG that Matt Rise brought up, right? It's like 
it's not an easy thing to work with, but if you're able to do it just right, it's, it's like this very, very nice thing that it's almost like a hard thing that not everybody can do or, or achieve necessarily uh, without a lot of practice possibly. Yep. Yep. And I'm going to tell you straight up though, there are strains that kind of do it all. So don't feel like it's one or the other. There, there are strains that just about do it all. There's a, uh, I'll go ahead and give them a shout out. Resonance Solventless. If you're, if anybody's following them, they're working with my power nap cut right now. Holy crap. They're doing such a good job with that. That looks amazing. But that would be an example of a strain that yields in the wash, almost like a dry sandy one, but squeezes at a high yield, makes really juicy rosin. You can make some clear oily ice water hash out of it. If you just want to make full melt, like they're, they are out there, so don't feel like you have to have one side of the field or the other. You can find strains that do it all. So, caveat yeah. to that one, that one does like to herm out. That's that's her only downside. Otherwise, that's a great strain. So, No, that's cool. Yeah, shout out to Resonance. They're super cool people. I'm curious if things like the power knock or that kind of mixed spectrum of qualities is something that you, that you see commonly, or is that pretty uncommon? I'd say it's pretty uncommon. I think you're going to see it get more and more common as you see more and more people breeding specifically for it. I watch guys like Chwale and things like that. I'm like, oh yes, let's have more of that. You know, let's, let's impart breed based on the resin dial. I work with certain people in private that, you know, they, they do their seed projects and I watch their phenos individually and we base phenotyping on that. You know, it is something that should definitely be taken into consideration. And while it's not a one-to-one, if it does well in in hash and in rosin, it's generally going to do pretty darn well in solvent extract too. So if that's your game, like, I mean, either way, it's just a good way to phenotype things and, and it's not a bad thing to breed for, especially with the growing popularity of rosin. If I was a breeder and I was interested in getting my genetics in commercial settings, I would definitely take that into consideration. Now, going back to a point you made a little bit ago, can you talk to us a little bit about seeing the differences between possibly the same genetics from an outdoor environment and the indoor environment and relating it to, you know, the ease of being able to work with the resin? What do you think or can maybe speculate on why the outdoor sometimes may be easier to work with? Well, I, w- I will say easier to work with, but then also, again, it may be a situation where it's going to be lower yielding from the press. You know, when you're pressing the hash, you might get a little bit lower yield on the rosin. You're probably, you're almost certainly going to get a slightly different terpene profile overall, but you may not like the terpenes or the colors quite as much as what you see on an indoor. And one of the reasons for that is that the outdoor plant is contending with outdoor factors. So, more drastic changes in temperature and humidity in the intensity of lighting, things like that. And in response to that, you end up with a really big, strong, hardy, healthy plant. You know, this is a plant that has gone through, you know, boot camp, basically. It's, it's a soldier. But the thing about that is it's going to have a lot thicker of that wax that we were talking about. It's going to have a more temperature and humidity resistant wax to it. And just like the surface of the plant has that, all the trichomes, their stalks and everything have that too. So you might see larger trichome heads and your upper bags might catch quite a bit of material. But number one, unless your indoor situation is really dirty and disgusting, Lord forbid, your outdoor is probably going to have more dust, dirt, particulate, 
contaminant to it. And number two, those big heads are going to be comprised a lot more generally of waxes that won't necessarily press out in rosin unless maybe you're running way too high at temperatures. Don't do that. But one thing that does make it easy to work with is the fact that they have those waxes and perhaps that some of the terpenes have more so evaporated or you know volatized off of the plant in an outdoor setting than they might in a cooler controlled indoor setting. Specifically, if you're keeping your temperatures cooler, more fall-like at the end of your bloom cycle, which I would recommend whether you're going for flower or for hash, but definitely for hash, keep your temps cool if you can near finish. So potentially a lack of some of those lighter, brighter terpenes, a little bit thicker wax or heavier duty wax on an outdoor plant to make it a little bit easier to work with overall, especially if it is one of those super sticky, oily varieties compared with an indoor plant, I would say. Not that it's not rewarding to do outdoor plants. I gave a gelato cake to a buddy. He grew it in his backyard in some hugel culture beds that I set up for him with him. Really nice hugel culture beds. He already had great soil. And this gelato cake looked amazing. It, it really did well. It did kind of a, a lattice sort of trellis deal at an angle, and it was it just caught the daytime sun perfect. It was all sunlit material. Beautiful. And I warned him, I was saying, you know, sometimes gelato cake, not always the best. It's a little on the sticky side. The yield can be somewhat low or if we aren't careful with it, especially in prepping it, it can be prone to contamination, you know, chlorophyll and things. But I'm super happy to give it a try. Man, that thing hit. That thing washed incredibly. And the hash was actually bright colored, beautiful hash. Kind of shocked the hell out of me. But I think it was the first time I'd run gelato cake outdoors. So there you go. Blew my mind. (laughs) <laughs> but that that would be some, some of the main differences that I see between running outdoor versus indoor. Indoor, if it's a sticky strain to begin with, you're going to get a higher challenge rating. You might get a little bit bigger yield on the press for sure. And you're probably going to get a lot brighter, nice, a little bit nicer terps maybe, at least by most people's standards. Probably a higher terpene to cannabinoid ratio on your rosin too. So relating those points back to what we were talking about earlier to the quality of the resin, and for example, this gelato cake that you just brought up that your friend grew in the full sun, do you also feel like genetics can be influenced by how they're being grown, whether it's the medium, whether it's the cultivator themselves, whether it's the care that's being put into them? Like, for example, can a genetic that typically is more waxy and less oily by maybe nature or genetics, let's call it, can it be improved by a cultivator? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would, uh, I would say so. I think there's definitely some things you can do to tweak that. In general, environment plays a, a pretty big role on how your plants are going to perform. And I think that's why you see certain strains, while like us Colorado people would love for them to be popular out here that folks grow on the West Coast, they just never do because they don't like our environment and vice versa. I think Colorado does have kind of an edge, at least with outdoor, in regard to producing the kinds of plants that you'd want, because we do have almost a similar latitude and altitude as places like Afghanistan or even the Kush Mountain region, which is, you know, where a lot of the original hash cultivars are coming from. Some of these early big, big trichome guys are coming from. But I've definitely seen things in a grow negatively impact hash. 
such as running an indoor way too humid or too hot at the end of bloom and having that cause darkening of trichomes or the impregnation of trichomes with vascular fluids. So green or purple fluid from the plant, chlorophyll, anthocyanin, things like that, leaching into the trichome. Lack of terpenes due to high heat, things like that. Now, if you can damage a plant based on conditions, you can definitely benefit a plant and benefit by whatever metric you're looking for. So if a plant is a little bit too sticky, I'm sure there's something you could do humidity and temperature-wise to harden it off a little bit more and get the slightly drier trichomes you're looking for. However, rather than cater the grow to making the plant waxier, I would rather cater my hash making process to being able to handle those waxy tri or soft, ooey, ooey gooey kind of trichomes. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I would rather fix the other side of it because those sticky trichomes, while they're hard to work with, man, I mean, if you can, it's worth it. You know, I would, I would not want to create conditions that are not conducive to other plants performing well in order to make that plant perform, in my opinion, worse by one metric. I'd rather just figure out ways to improve the, ha the hash making if possible. So since you're working in a commercial setting now, do you feel, and you refer to these settings at times, feeling like slaughterhouses for plants? <laughs> yep. Can you still produce really high grade hash from a setting like that in your opinion? Ooh, not not necessarily in the slaughterhouses. I think it could be done, but there'd be a little bit of luck and a lot of skill involved in a in a slaughterhouse type setting, a place where you're running, let's say, you know, just like straight house and garden through uh, bubble buckets or something like that, in a seven week chop with like scrog style baby plants jammed all together, super humid you know, microwaving everything because it's all full of bud rot and stuff. No, I don't think you could make good hatch out of that. No, sir. But in a commercial setting where you actually have at least something approximating nature, you know, not not the boy in the bubble situation for plants, what I, what I like to call uh, grass-fed, free-range cannabis plants that actually have some room to breathe around them and maybe at the very least get like a tea or some beneficial bacteria, fungi or humic acid once in a while. Something, you know, something like a, not just slim fast piped up their butt and where they're relatively healthy at finish. Yes, I think you can definitely do it in a commercial setting. It is doable. And I think there's a lot of people actually doing it. And you see most of them, honestly, switching to soil or have been doing soil for quite some time. You know, I'm not, not like, uh, have any kind of brand loyalty or anything, but I would look at people like 710 or, or Dab Logic in Colorado and see that I, th I think you can definitely do it. I definitely do. And I'm assuming those are the types of settings that you were talking about as a cultivator, if you can be kind of picky and choosy as to mm -hmm. you know, the type of environment you're working in, you'd be seeking ideally something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, here's the cold hard facts too. When you smoke flour, like we were talking about before, if it didn't have THC to it, you wouldn't buy it, right? You probably wouldn't anyway. The The same is absolutely true with these like commercially cultivated flowers. If I wanted to smoke flour that didn't have trichomes, I wouldn't. You know, the if the material has good trichomes on it, it's going to be good flour. You can have small buds or big buds or purple buds or green buds that are good flour, and it's usually determined by the quality of the trichomes. 
So what I generally find is that strains I like to smoke are, are ones that actually do well in hash or that I like the hash that gets made from them because it's the trichomes that I'm looking for. So not only can you potentially grow good material for hash in these commercial settings, but I think when a commercial setting focuses on hash production, whether they want to or not, they, they end up growing quality flower as well. Not necessarily by uh, certain factors such as bud structure or, you know, a few others potentially, but the kind of stuff where when you roll it up and pass it to somebody, they go, wow, what the hell is this? It, it's probably stuff that would have made pretty good hash to begin with. Yeah, like you said, it's about the quality of the trichome and all the qualities or characteristics that those bring. And definitely that's part of it is smell and taste. So I could see it. Mm -hmm. Well, cool, Fred. Do you think this is a good time for our first smoke break? Oh, I would love it. I could use a drink. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Toro, one of the true legacy glass brands, bringing us innovation in cannabis consumption for over the last 20 years. They've been pioneers and creators of pieces such as the Terp Slurper, something that we now commonly see and use in the dabbing world, all inspired by their love for the art of cannabis. They've provided us all new and creative ways to consume it while maintaining their commitment to excellence for over two decades and bringing us some of the best functional glass art on the market. So if you're looking for your next rig or you want to enhance your dabbing experience with one of their Terp tasters, which I personally love, then hit up Toro no matter where you are in the world at toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at toro underscore glass. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So although you've been in Colorado for some time, you originally came from California and you experienced cannabis for the first time in Colorado. Tell us what were some of your motivations for doing that and maybe a little bit about the details that you remember from it. Well, that was kind of a hard time for me. You know, I was uh, like moved here when I was 10 years old and where I grew up in California was a pretty exciting place. It was kind of on the south end of the bay and we had a lot of different communities who live there. It was a really big Chinese community, for example, and we get to see all kinds of neat things on Chinese New Year parades and stuff like that. It was just like a, a colorful and kind of fun, warm, nice place to grow up. And it was everything that I kind of, that I knew as a kid. But my dad died of cancer. Uh, he had a lymphoma on his back that got cut out and that, that had unfortunately before then metastasized up and down his lymphic system into his kidneys and brain, which they didn't find out until it was quite a bit later. And it was at, at a time for sure back then where it was a lot harder to treat even simpler cancers than that. So I watched him go through, you know, chemo and radiation therapy, and it was devastating for me as a, a kid, you know, 10 years old. And then right after he died, right around Christmas time, actually, just after Christmas, before New Year's, right after he died, beginning of the next year, we just uprooted and moved to Colorado, which was tough for me because Colorado, I mean, the color, just not there by comparison, you know, the landscape's a little bit more bleak. The food is a little less exciting, you know, and have all the fresh fruits and then fish and whatever else. And the community in a, a lot of ways, a little less, I guess, vibrant, you know, kids to, at that time too, you come out, I came out here wearing like body glove, you know, and listening to bands that they hadn't heard of. And it made it kind of easy for kids not to 
see me as friend material, I guess you could say. So I, I had a rough time. I was depressed and started looking for self-destructive things to do. And of course, like a lot of young people, even today, I've been lied to about cannabis, told that it was a, a horrible drug. You're going to overdose. You're going to get the cancer. You're going to get addicted right away. You'll become a lunatic. You know, all the all those things like that. That movie in uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas where he looks down and he's scratching that stain on his pants, you know, all that kind of stuff. So when I got presented with it, I was like, oh, yes, Uh, you know, I was super excited to give it a try. And for somebody who was going through depression at the time, like really bad, not sleeping, not eating, not being able to enjoy things like even just, you know, something funny, watching TV, whatever, just just feeling like everything's gray and without purpose, you know. But being able to use cannabis, I think I was about 13 at the time, which is a little too young. You know, there's there's a certain age where you should be using it and you shouldn't. But man, it did help me at the time, at least. I'm not saying that every 13-year-old should, but I actually was able to go to sleep. You know, I was I, I watched some cartoons and giggled about them and ate a big dinner and went to sleep and slept for like eight hours and woke up feeling almost symptom-free, you know, not not fully, but at least to the point where I could feel well enough to address what the hell was really wrong with me. No hangover, none of that stuff. And I kind of felt like, wow, holy shit, I might have been lied to about this a little bit, you know, because I I had done other self-destructive acts and this did not feel like one of them. I actually felt like I was, you know, moving in a better direction rather than trying to hurt myself with this. So finding that out and then also later on finding out that my dad while he was going through the treatment and everything, actually, unbeknownst to me, was using cannabis pretty heavily. Now, it wasn't legal for him to be using, but apparently he was a pretty big user when he was a teenager. And like, you know, nowadays I have a poster that was his and he worked at Hewlett Packard and he had it mocked up. It's like a Wheaties poster, but it says Wheaties breakfast to head starters. And it's got the zigzag man smoking a doobie on it. But he used it while he was suffering with cancer and it helped him out quite a bit too. And I'm like, holy crap, man. I mean, why, why was there so much mystique and, and misinformation about this? You know, it was helping him get through the hardest time in his life. I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like for him watching me, knowing that he's not going to be there. I was 10 years old. You know, it's, that would have scared the shit out of me if I was him. And anything that would have helped him through that, in my mind, is, is a godsend, you know, that is an angel sent to earth. So, you know, knowing that and the fact that it, it helped me with that, the side effects of all that crap that had happened to me at that age, I kind of fell in love with the product. And that's one of the reasons too, why I was so big on ice water hash and things is I, I'd seen the butane and the slop and I knew what was in it. And I'd see the pesticides that were getting used in the industry. And I imagine that getting like my dad being treated with products that were like that was one of the reasons why it was so, I guess, offensive to me at the time when I, when I was seeing these abuses in the industry, let's call them with pesticides and butane. Well, that was my first real exposure to cannabis. I mean, I guess if you want me to describe the high, I mean, holy crap, I was looking up through the trees thinking I was looking at stars, but it was just sunlight. And I was like, you know, seeing things in frames. You don't, you don't get high like that anymore. That was the first time. Especially if I were to smoke weed of that quality again, I, I don't think I would get that effect. But yeah, I mean, it was fun at the time. But the main thing that was nice for me after I you know, was on the come down was all those little side effects, like being able to eat and sleep and 
feeling okay about myself for a little while at the time. Nowadays, I use it a lot less, I would say, but man, and when your back is sore after making hash all day or something like that, or if you just want to have a solid sleep at night without having weird dreams keeping you up or waking you up in the middle of the night, it, it's pretty handy still. But man, I was really grateful to have it when I did coming out here to Colorado and uh, dealing with what I did. One of the funny things too was uh, one of the reasons I got picked up and moved to Colorado is my mom thought that there was too much of a, a cannabis culture in the state of California. Uh, and she was worried her kids would fall into that 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 trap, you know, because it's such an evil drug. So she picked up and moved us to a nice, clean, pot-free state. Ironic. <laughs> yeah, whoops. <laughs> so was it like a pretty immediate connection then to the plant? Like you said, you kind of grew an affinity for it. Was it like since that first time? First of all, did it affect you the first time? It sounds like it did. And then no, secondly, okay. No, no, I did make it sound like that, but no, I smoked that. I think it was the 13th time I smoked that actually got an effect. And man, did it blast me off. I was like, I eventually it's going to get me or everybody's lying or something. And when it hit, I was like, damn, okay, this is real. But yeah, I, I, I talked to a lot of people who say they got high the first time. And I'm like, really, man, that didn't, that's not how it worked for me. <laughs> Yeah, 13 times sounds like a lot. But yeah, I, I definitely, likewise, it wasn't like the first time, maybe even the second time. But, you know, you that first time that it does, you really, you know it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, there was no mistake in it. But from that point on, did your relationship with the plant just kind of continue up until this point? Although, like you said, it's changed over time. And maybe now it's less of a presence in your life in that sense than it was back then. Well, back then, obviously, I'm like, I'm 13, you know, so my my knowledge of and ability to produce it for myself is pretty limited. But the other thing, too, without having a dad around, we had a single parent household and stuff like that. It wasn't easy. So I, I think the statute of limitations would have expired by now. I used to sell quite a lot as a young man, actually, like pretty young, quite quite a bit of weight um, to the more wealthy suburban kids that I went to school with which helped my family out quite a bit. So not only did I have one relationship with it, I had another, which was, you know, helping to make ends meet. Um, it was around the same time, 13, I started working kind of under the table, like not 100% legally for the Denver News Agency and Rocky Mountain Post and all that. Now the now it's just the Denver News Agency. It used to be the Denver Post, Rocky Mountain News. And uh, yeah, just trying to make money any way that I could to make ends meet. And one of them was selling weed, but eventually just working all kinds of different jobs, plumbing and whatever else. And, you know, as, as I got older and still doing a little bit of maybe selling pot on the side, but when medical popped off, I was like, Oh crap, time to like, I, this is the one thing that's actually been rewarding to me all the way through, whether it's my personal use of it, doing the business aspect of it, whatever, like I enjoy this. And when I was doing when I was doing plumbing work or retail or service, people did not want to spend the money, you know, it's because something broke and they're not happy about it. Most of the time, they're not happy about going to buy hardware from, from Home Depot or whatever else, or having to rent a carpet cleaner or any of that crap. But man, when people go to a dispensary, most of the time, they, at least when it first popped off, I'll say they were pretty happy to spend the money. And I, you know, you 
everybody was just happy. It was a good environment. So I could not wait to actually get involved in that. And as it turns out, I'm a little bit more, a little bit more apt for production than I am for the sales front. I'm, I'm kind of a doer. I like to make things. So that's kind of been my relationship with it. Yeah. And you told me that even in context of some of your other work, including maybe even the plumbing where you're like, you like to be doing things, not customer service isn't necessarily like your thing. So I can see that, but going back to when you were around 13 and, you know, like you said, you kind of started that hustle. You told me at some point you helped a friend of yours and that's when you first kind of got your first exposure to being able to do the water hash or the ice water process because of maybe some like kind of failed, you know, projects that they had going on. Oh yeah. It was a horrible strain for it too. They were growing a whole bunch of super silver haze and they thought, I don't know why that was the thought just to grow that plant, but it was grown poorly. Um, I think it was in some bubble buckets and the whole system was just sad. It was a popcorn factory, small buds that were airy, pretty much untrimmable. So there was just totes full of byproducts and not a whole lot of understanding of what to do with it. But we had heard rumor of these bubble bags, some kind of bags that make bubble things. So (laughs) it was one of those things where I was like, I'll spend the money, man. I've smoked this hash stuff before and I sure liked it. I'll spend the money. So I think we went down to a hydro shop, me and my friends who were, whose family was trying to attempt, you know, some semi-profitable home grow and not having success. Got some off-brand, you know, hash bags, uh, probably like a four or five bag set. Went back and sat in their kitchen with a, a drill and a mud mixer and just making all the mistakes that people at least used to make back then, trying to turn this material into something usable and just doing research, uh, more and more research as time went on from there. Eventually, work, starting to work in the industry not too long after that uh, and working at a place, seeing the material that I was get, growing get turned into bad BHO, I started to do a little bit more buckle down kind of research which is what eventually did lead me to finding the ice wax method on rollitup.org, which was put out by Matt Rise. I know, controversial character, I know. But that's what uh, that's what I read up on. And it was the first thing I came across that really put it down to where the product I was coming up with changed substantially from brown gumby bubble hash, like some people would be familiar with back in the day, that just tastes like pepper and frankincense at best, you know? So something that actually looked a lot closer to what modern hash does. And it leaves some residue, obviously, you know, this was back in the day, but you could actually put it on a nail and dab it, which was kind of groundbreaking at the time. And there wasn't even a whole lot of people, it seemed, doing that. You know, you had Matt Rise, you had Nicotee, Bubble Man would throw up pictures and things like that. There, there was a few heads back in the day uh, when I first started actually making something that would approximate full melt. But that was the the method I found that enabled me to do it. Yeah, so lots of things to dig into here. One of them is going back to the original time where you're washing the super silver haze, which like you said, oh, God. ideal strain, it's not growing well, et cetera, et cetera. But what is your impression of the process at first? Was it striking or was it just like, this is like you said, just kind of sad? And then later on, maybe you saw it in a different light. Oh, immediately I knew we were doing something wrong. Something was not being done right. There had to have been a better way. <laughs> just looking at like the bags twisting up on the drill and, uh, you know, it just seemed like the, this was not 
it could be done better. That was my immediate impression. There's, there is better methods and I need to do some more research before I really start wasting any more material doing this. Just obvious inefficiencies in, in the base method that existed back then, or at least that I was running with. It did not dishearten me at all, even though the outcome was low, the hours were long. <laughs> I didn't care. And honestly, the hash, uh, it was way better than smoking the flower. If I had to spend all night hanging a 25 micron bag, I would do it so that I didn't have to smoke that terrible flower. The hash was way better. But my initial impressions were, yeah, there there needs to be a lot of attention to detail and some in, intelligent technique applied to this in order to make it viable. But I know somewhere underneath this, all this crap, it is viable 100%. It, it, it should be. And it, it is. It is. Even if I were to run that same material today, it, it would be more worth my time for sure. You mentioned before processing that you had already smoked hash. When did that come about? Throughout the time, anytime I could basically get my hands on it, if somebody said they had hash, I'd be like, I'm interested. And most of the time it was pressed keef. Sometimes it would be bubble hash, you know, old fashioned pressed out. And by pressed out, I mean scooped out of the bags and pressed into towels while it's still wet with that, you know, 25 micron yielding screen wrapped around it. Disgusting. It would be water impregnated. It would be usually green or brown if it had sat long enough. But man, was I excited to get it back in the day because it meant I didn't have to, you know, smoke a half eighth at a time out of a bong. I could take a couple rips of that and be set. And I really liked the effect. I'm not going to lie. I loved that effect off of the old school hash. And even to this day, like if you're really looking to, you know, get the munchies, want to watch cartoons, take a big, nice afternoon nap. If you're looking for those full entourage effects, Smoking quality ice water hash, not rosin, not even flour, but quality ice water hash is, in my opinion, probably the best way to do it. And I loved the effect. There were times even where as payment for doing some of the plumbing work I did when I was a plumber, we would get paid in hash. I worked out one of those deals. My boss was so happy because hash didn't come around that often back in the day. It was like, wow, 14 grams of sour diesel bubble hash. How exciting. It was green stuff, but it, you know what? It was nice. For for the time, fantastic. So those were kind of my encounters with hash. And usually being a plumber, you know, you pull a screen out of a sink. You know, we just roast it off of that with a lighter or whatever, <laughs> you know, no fancy dabbing or anything. So yeah, when it came around, we boy, did we celebrate. I'm guessing the screens would definitely pass those microbial tests right now. Oh, oh yes, 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So once you decided and the medical laws kind of came in and you're like, okay, this is something I've enjoyed, I want to do. And you mentioned not necessarily being super into like the retail part of it. How did you get into whether it was cultivating or hash making? Cultivating first, and it was pretty much just by shoving my feet in the door, like forcibly. The the regulations and things were a lot looser. And while I should have had a badge at the time, it was, you know, I kind of worked on a semi-contractual basis with the company that I did, you could call it. And eventually I was showing up so often and, uh, you know, being helpful, like genuinely learning and adapting and working hard that they were like, ah, we just, we just got to hire the guy. And I did get my badge eventually to where the company just hired me outright. 
they rotated me through a variety of different positions from bud tender to front desk. And I, ju- I just talked to patients too much, talked to them about the strains and things like that. And to some degree, you have to be able to sell and rotate, you know, like sell whatever's on sale or we have the most of. You got to be able to get people through your cus- through your cash register. And I would just sit and talk to them for hours about different strains and all this. So no good there. But anytime I was in the grow, I would definitely shine because I, I can... I can stay moving, stay busy. Um, and my passion for doing it was humongous. I mean, the idea that as a kid growing up and thinking pot was, you know, as cool as I did, the idea of being able to grow it for a living was definitely like pinnacle in my mind, you know, and it's not necessarily the right way to think, but I don't necessarily regret thinking that way. I'm like, man, would teenage Fred think that me today was cool for what I do? I'm just like, hell yeah, hell yeah. Because <laughs> I never would have guessed I could do it. I would have never thought growing up as a kid and learning the quadratic formula that I'd actually just grow pot for a living in the end, you know, <laughs> and make hash, which is pretty fantastic. You know, I, I really can't complain. There, I could probably make more doing real estate or something, but I don't think I'd be happy. Yeah, there's certainly something to being happy and, and doing the work that you're doing. And it's not necessarily all about finances. So I'm with you on that. And, you know, back to this cultivation position that you kind of established for yourself by, you know, pushing your way in a little bit to the scene. How challenging was learning that process? And was there anybody who was like guiding you along the way or were you just learning from other cultivators from that particular facility or how was that working out? It was a really small cultivation like the one I'm working in right now, which a pretty ideal circumstance in that regard you know, getting thrown into a big pond when you're a little fish can be a little bit tough. The guy who I had working over me was a gentleman by the name of Darren Potter. And I don't mind name dropping him because he was a fantastic teacher. I've known and still keep up with a lot of people who have also worked under him or learned from him. And I don't think any of them would say anything different. He was one of the most unconventional, at times inappropriate and unpredictable people that could ever teach you how to grow cannabis. And he would be probably top of my list of who I would want if I could have it all done over again. Just just a really knowledgeable guy, passionate about it, and weird enough to keep you on your toes. He ended up going out to Florida and heading up some of the medical marijuana division out there, which I haven't talked to him in a while, but God, I hope everything's going all right. I hear that's kind of a mess right now. But I learned from him and learned a substantial amount uh, about cannabis from him and also watched him kind of get pushed out of a company that he more or less created or a grow that he created and licensed and what have you, which was sort of my first exposure also to how, how the industry can be, which isn't always pretty, unfortunately. But after he got pushed out, I ended up being head grower and that was... Uh, I don't know, maybe seven or eight months after growing my first pot plant officially on a commercial level. <laughs> so that that was a little bit of a, a deep end situation. But again, not a humongous grow and a, and a really fun one where I got to do a lot of different things like phenotyping from seed, trying different things. And eventually, um, because it was small and because at the time too, you could produce hash in what's called here in Colorado, at least an OPC or basically a, a, a place licensed just for cannabis flower production. 
you could make ice water hash in one. Now you do have to have a licensed MIP or basically infused product license, different licensing. But back in the day, you could make ice water hash in a grow. So just a standard grow. And I convinced the bosses to let me do a bit of that, which is what enabled me to get a lot of my early better experience specifically with the ice wax method rather than just simply making bubble hash and to be starting with some quality material, which is, again, kind of paramount to really being able to judge your own abilities and skills. So overall, uh, it was a good experience. I got, uh, you know, no experience in this industry is complete without taking some lumps and it definitely had those. But that being the case, I would still put it down as a good experience and a good way to have got my introduction to the industry and to commercial hash making. Were the methods that you were using to cultivate back then similar to the ones that you're using now? Or how has that changed for you? Well, actually, that's a whole nother thing, too, because not only is the the scale and the environment and growth style similar, but the methods were pretty similar, too. So back then, we were using an amended cocoa. So we'd buy bags of cocoa, but we would amend it with things like earthworm castings, uh, ancient forest, which you can't seem to find anymore. They might not be making it, which is sad because that's actually a good product and a little extra perlite. So it'd be like cocoa with some humic content and things like that to it. And that would actually do a little bit better job of supporting beneficial bacteria and fungi. And that's essentially what I'm growing in now commercially too. So it actually holds moisture for a little while. If there is a, any kind of drought stress, the plants bounce back better. You can feed them teas, especially since we're just top watering through wands and not irrigation lines, just like we did back at the first place I worked at. Uh, we can feed lots of biological products without worries of it clogging up the drip lines or it just going straight through the pot and not really not really sustaining itself in there. And overall, I like that. If I'm going to do hydro, it is going to be basically a, a soilless something replicating soil as much as possible. And I'm still going to try and feed it metabolically focused things. And that's exactly what we did back then. And it's actually really similar to what we do now. Liquids back then, nowadays dry salts, which neither one is pretty, but dry salts do make a hell of a lot more sense for a commercial application, not paying for the shipping on them, you know, not having to worry about evaporation, causing changes in concentration and what have you. Yeah. Overall, like I said, I, I would always rather be growing in some true organic soil. And my preferred method, especially for cannabis, would be like hugel culture, like a step up from no-till. In my opinion, like never-till kind of beds if I could. You mentioned one of the fun things for you as the head grower in that period was being able to go through seeds and phenotype. Is that something that you feel like was pretty relatively new at the time within those um, medical or slash commercial settings? And are there any strains that you kind of remember from that time that maybe you miss or things that were standouts to you? Oh, I mean, it's not necessarily unique to back then. It can still be done nowadays. There's ways to get it done legally and things like that. It was just back then because the regulations were looser. You could pretty much just bring some beans in from any old place and pop them. It was the wild, wild west. There were some beautiful genetics and I, man, I would love to mention them, but I think it would probably name drop. And I don't know if I'm supposed to do that because if I were to 
I mean, I would love to take credit for it too. Cause if I was like, I'm the guy who phenotyped this, people would be like, Oh damn. Wow. Cause that was a Colorado banger like back in the day and everybody loved it and still kind of does. But yeah, yeah, definitely. Some, I'll, I'll just say some, some of obsolete genetics back in the day, some of that alien tech. <laughs> and if you know, you know, but man, those, those were beautiful plants. I'm kind of a chem head and some of the stuff that he was working through that alien tech and bringing chems into it and stuff was so delicious and actually yielded really well in hash too. Yeah. Back in the day, those would probably, those would be somewhat near the top of the list. And I still get to do some, some seed work today, which is fantastic. And in fact, there's a lot more local Colorado breeders and a lot of breeders who are focusing on breeding for hash production, which is exciting to see back in the day. It was you just kind of got lucky and found a breeder who was working with a male or a female that happened to be a hash cultivar, you know? Now it sounds like you're definitely, and I've talked with this about, you know, a variety of people is like, there's more of that intention to create, you know, these genetic lines that have a higher possibility to work within this particular process. Yeah. Yeah. And at the very least, I mean, if, if you can factor that in somewhat, it doesn't have to be your primary goal, you know, but it, it better do something in some category as a breeder, right? It better yield high in flower. It better be super exotic or it better yield high in hash. And if it can be at least like a B minus in any or all of those categories, all the better. So if I was a breeder at the very least, I'd be getting one of those resin dials for sure. Just to, just to factor that in, it might not be the primary qualifier, but it would certainly be a factor in my mind. This is becoming a resin dial ad, which I don't love. <laughs> so going back to something you brought up earlier and then tying it into this, when you made this hash from this first facility that you worked at, it came inspired by outside of the BHO, you know, blowing people up when they're doing it at home and not knowing what they're doing. But also you mentioned that because of the regulations being pretty loose, the BHO that they were producing from that high-grade product that you guys were growing wasn't very good. And that was really what kind of inspired you to be like, you know what, we should make hash from this. But it also took you convincing them and then also would take you time additional to your like 50 plus hours a week that you were already putting in the cultivation to be able to make that happen. Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of people, I mean, even today, sometimes it, it takes putting in and a lot of self-sacrifice to convince the people of the merit of things sometimes. And I don't blame them because there's a lot of money, a lot of risk involved in some of these things. But yeah, it was it was basically me and two trimmers who would also help with things like defoliation, overseeing two kind of medium-sized, I would say, bloom rooms. And that was just not enough labor. So yeah, you're talking 50 hours a week, sometimes six days a week, working through holidays and things like that. But wanting this ice water hash thing to happen and to work so bad that, yeah, if I got one day off a week, I'd be coming in to do it. And the day prior, I would be spending an extra like three to four hours just prepping everything, making sure that it was ready for me to do that. And I knew it was a unique opportunity. You know, I, I couldn't have known that they would eventually not allow you to make hash in an OPC. But I mean, i I'd been growing there for not terribly that long before this opportunity presented itself and access to material like what I was growing at the time was a very rare thing. You know, I was very excited about that material and about the opportunity to learn on it and practice on it. 
so yeah, the the BHO that was being produced from that same material, it it looked like something you'd see in a snot rag. You know, it didn't. It, I was so unimpressed. And on top of that, it crackled and popped and shot rockets. We'd back in the day, you'd call it rocket sauce. You know, we had our our swing arm skillets, and you'd throw it on that, and it would pop and crackle, and literally stuck molten hot BHO to my eyeball once or twice. And I said, this is enough. I'm done, man. I would rather smoke brown bubble hash off a screen than deal with this. It's making me choke. It's giving me headaches. I had a friend who had a seizure. We're not doing this anymore. (laughs) So yeah, it, it took a lot of pressuring and convincing and even doing things like, look, these fan leaves, I know we're going to throw them away. They have the tiniest bit of sugar on it. Just let me practice just for practice purposes. And I pulled out maybe like a gram of some slightly green, but very fragrant and bubbly stuff. And they're like, you know, little, little increments like that. They're like, Oh, okay. 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 Maybe we could try fresh trimming one plant next harvest, fresh trim, which is a nightmare and not necessarily conducive to quality end product. But Hey, now I actually have some sugar leaf type material to work with off a of fresh plant. That's pretty exciting. And just little increments like that. Every step of the way in this industry, I've found if if you try to just crank all the dials and force things too fast, it just ends in catastrophe. You really have to be ready to make little incremental demonstrations like that to show that things work. But that's what it took. And eventually it got a lot of attention, got a lot of traction. Even they were pretty excited about it, willing to send it off for testing and things. And it was testing unusually high, even for some of the solvent concentrates at the time where we did a side-by-side test of the solvent extracts against my non-solvent on the same material, then my non-solvent tested higher. And the bosses were like, I would personally pay more for the stuff Fred made. So, you know, eventually when it comes to merit, you you can't hide it. Like the when the results are on the table, you just, they are what they are. And nowadays, I think side-by-side, the BHO would have looked a lot better. You know, I don't, I don't even know that they were using a closed loop to produce it or how they were purging it or what, but let's just say the competition wasn't that steep. You know, I think I was doing a pretty good job, but yeah, the watermark wasn't that high at the time. (laughs) And comparing that to when you first watched that super silver haze and thinking to yourself, there are better ways to do this. What were some of the things that you tried to implement moving forward, like for example, doing those test washes for this company were did you start incorporating like a colder temperature room or fresh frozen at any point or how did that advance for you? Fresh frozen material is definitely a step up in overall quality. And that much I knew from more or less from the beginning. Also, I think keeping the environment cold, that that's kind of somewhat a given. I know a lot of people maybe hear it and go, Oh yeah. Okay. Makes sense. But like, I mean, come on, you're, you're trying to keep everything cold. That's part of the process. But one of the biggest things I would say would be spraying the yield down that stepped up the inherent quality of the hash before it got scooped out of the bag substantially. And what I mean by that is using some sort of at least moderately pressurized spray, usually out of a pump sprayer full of ice water with a flat jet sprayer, Um, You see a lot of people commercially using uh, potable water or safe drinking water out of a some kind of a spray gun or some other similar product. 
the purpose of doing that is to rinse down the yields. So you can imagine the trichomes in the bag, almost like grapes in a colander when you go to rinse them before you eat them. And it's to separate off little bits of junk or, you know, pesticides or dust or dirt or insect poop from the field, whatever might be the case. Same is true with hash. When you're making it ice water hash, you need to spray the yield down inside the screen. Now, assuming your screen is clean and you spray your hash down thoroughly, you should then sort that hash not only by diameter, so that if you're spraying down a 120 micron screen, only 120 micron and above heads or trichome heads are sitting on that screen and your lower microns have separated out below like they should. And also that chlorophyll, plant matter and things have broken down through the screen in order to purify that hash. Stalks, stems, systolith hairs and things that don't belong in that yield have had a chance to be tumbled and rinsed through the screen. So Learning to do that and the importance of it definitely stepped up the inherent quality of what I was scooping out of the bag. Now, once it was scooped out of the bag, I probably still would have made some brown bubble hash had I not also learned about separating it. So with uh, what a lot of the time is attributed with solventless technology or technique or like isolator type of hash making by Mila Jansen would be to shove the hash through a sieve in order to get a sort of almost granular micro pelletized kind of texture to it. The method that I learned on would be the ice wax method, which is taking the hash, getting the most of the water out of it, freezing it, and then running it over a kitchen grater or zester, very fine one, usually microplane brand. If you're going to try this, get the microplane brand, not to turn this into a microplane ad, but that's how you do it. Um, <laughs> and using that to zest it into a very fine texture. And the purpose of that is just to maximize surface area, let any ambient moisture evaporate out of it, and to preserve color quality as long as it's then being placed into a cool, dark, gently ventilated, clean air type environment. Without doing that, your hash tends to turn into what we recognize as old bubble hash. It'll oxidize. It'll end up with sort of trapped moisture that then evaporates out and leaves behind byproducts and things like that. And it, in general, it won't have the color, the terpene quality, or the melt that you would be looking for otherwise. Both methods do work, the sieving and the microplaning. Microplaning is kind of what I trained on, especially early on. That and the rinsing are probably the two biggest factors in what improves the quality of the hash. I look back on a lot of batches of hash I made, like even that super silver haze, the very first ice water hash I probably ever made. If I had spent some time spray rinsing that, and then I had separated the yields into some kind of a powderized or granular kind of form to air dry somewhere dark and cool, I probably would have ended up with something that would have at the very least bubbled on a screen probably would have hit with super silver haze. I might've been able to get up dry trim. I might've been able to get up to like 50, 55% yield on the press. So from hash to rosin, if I was making rosin back then, yeah, just spray rinsing and proper drying is very, uh, very critical to end quality. And that was, what was kind of missing in a lot of the early hash making techniques. Yeah. It is interesting how a lot of these techniques that now to the current, knowledge seems pretty commonplace at that time wasn't necessarily i remember i think talking to nick or nikati about this and him adapting that from for example mila and i was talking to you about this last time is 
at the time, I guess it felt also could feel kind of risky, right? It's like, are you pushing through this hash and are you losing some of it? But you made a great point in that not only do you get the chlorophyll out, but you're able to more evenly be able to keep the the heads that are around that same diameter in the bag and then the rest of them can pass through and then you can do this a similar thing to that. But going to your point of what you said earlier about most hash having this kind of frankincense type aroma flavor to it, do you attribute that primarily to the drying? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Just in general, post-process handling. So keeping it somewhere warm where a lot of terpenes, the more volatile ones especially, can just evaporate out or be destroyed or oxidized, leaving ambient moisture in it. A lot of the time, I mentioned a little bit before, but the old school way to get your hash dry was to just take take it right out of the bag. You know, the second you've scooped it onto that little flat screen, wrap it up and just squeeze the shit out of it <laughs> with a towel wrapped around And you'll get some moisture out, but you're also going to smash quite a lot into it and destroy a lot of trichomes in the process. And that wax layer on the outside of the trichome that we mentioned earlier is something that helps that trichome not just oxidize and turn to crap. And when you've ruptured and smashed them and worked a bunch of water into them forcefully, they're, they're almost guaranteed to oxidize or be oxidized by the time you're done. And that's probably one of the biggest, biggest contributors to why the hash came out the color it did. But I think some people did make some quality bubble hash back then, but it was that oxidization that caused the issues, or it might have been, you know, terpene rich material. But because it wasn't spray rinsed, like we talked about earlier, there was green and or purple material in it that then oxidized out, terpenes acted on them and things like that instead of being able to present as whole rich terpenes, they've now done their solvent action on some plant materials, some chlorophyll, some anthocyanin, oxidized them, broken them down. Maybe even some of the acidic cannabinoids like THCA have dissolved them a little bit. And now that THCA is delta-9 THC or inert compounds. And it's it's just not not that fresh, bright, stripped off the plant quality that we, at least on a modern setting, are going for. I remember one story about uh, the Frenchie, God rest his soul, was that when he first really encountered ice wax and like what we used to call back in the day, really finely granulated ice water hash that was bright blonde. You could dab it on a nail. You know, it almost acted like an oil. It would grease up in your pocket. When he first saw that stuff, What he supposedly said, I wasn't present, so I can't verify that. But what he supposedly said was, this is not ash, this is kith. Because it looked like a bright, blonde kind of powder, right? And a lot of the hash that we had all been accustomed to was stuff that was pressed out or a little bit more brown colored and things like that. But yeah, it's it's a lot of that that separation and the spray rinsing that I think fixed that, that old school brown hash problem. I used to get good sleep off that brown hash, though, I'll tell you. I'd knock you right out. <laughs> That's funny, yeah, because I'm assuming some of it is like breaking down that THC into things like CBN, possibly, that could help contribute to that. So it is interesting how it's almost like a different product, same concept, same starting material, different methodology, different practices, and how that's become kind of, you know, 
it depends on the terminology that's being used. So all these things are always super fascinating to me. What was really interesting was when I first started making really good hash and it started actually showing up on a shelf, about half the people who showed at least some interest in it were older cats that remembered brown bubble hash or Moroccan hash or something like that. And you couldn't sell them on it because they wanted that brown brick bubble hash, you know, and it was like, Fred, stop me. You know, you got to make half good hash and half old school hash. Because the, the audience is kind of split right now, you know? <laughs> it was an interesting dynamic. Yeah, that is. I hadn't really thought about that, but that makes sense. You know, it's at some point, I think it was like a nostalgic thing for, like you're saying, people that were a little older and had experienced that, whether that was here or elsewhere. But, you know, hash mm-hmm. has always been kind of related to the other side of the world. And now, you know, there's this kind of newer generation of this kind of new age hash, if you want to call it that, that are more getting accustomed to like what we know as hash now on this side and really globally now, I feel it's kind of a mix. So it is quite interesting. But to explore a point a little further, you know, you mentioned the idea of like the the towel drying and the squeezing and retaining of water, not to equate that necessarily to sieving, but is the reason that you decide to microplane because you find that in sieving that could be a little more prone to happen than, for example, microplaning? I would say yes. Uh, Truth be told, though, the main reason that I fell into microplaning was because it was, I found the method, it was open source, and it was fairly detailed. I was like, wow, you know, this, this actually has the info that I feel like I need to execute this confidently. I'd read a little bit about sieving, but it seemed it seemed like people were being a little tighter with the information or I was doing a poor job of finding it. So that was probably the bigger factor in me being into microplaning. Learning more about both, one of the reasons that I stuck with microplaning at least early on was that I did feel like it separated, did a better job of separating it. With a sharp microplane, you're, you are bisectioning some of the trichomes which people will, you know, poop on. <laughs> not not unrealistically. There's, there is a reason to not want to slice trichomes. But if your cure environment's proper, if the most of the moisture has been removed from the hash through a wicking action, basically scooping it out onto a screen that sits on towels or paper towels that get swapped out regularly to where the hash is mostly dry and then frozen solid before you microplane it, the trichomes that do get sliced get pretty cleanly sliced and they shouldn't oxidize as long as they're going into a nice spread out environment, cool and dark. The benefit to that is that you get a lot more separation and those sliced trichomes, once you reamalgamate the whole thing, re-scoop it all up and put it into a jar, can act as a mortar between the trichome bricks, so to speak. They can sort of gel that much sooner and cause your stuff to just make a really nice, clear grease. With sieving, and this is somewhat my experience, and take it with a grain of salt because I have substantially more experience microplaning than I do sieving. But with sieving, you're essentially pushing it through some through squares, smallish squares. Now, there you're generally not going to get as fine of a texture as you do when you're microplaning if you're microplaning correctly. It does take a lot of skill to microplane correctly. And you have to work fast. And it's also really bad on your joints and ligaments and your wrist and your elbow and everything. It's not it's not easy on the body. 
But when you're sieving, you're also creating what I view as somewhat of a globule. So the, the similar process is used for things like making gunpowder and things like that to make a lightly pelletized texture to something that you might be processing. And the goal in that process is to create as much surface area and as fine of a texture as you can get away with in order to evacuate as much moisture as possible. So in my mind, the sieving takes kind of a backseat there. Where it is better, though, for sure, is ergonomics, number one, and number two, being able to do large quantities because you kind of need a team of dedicated, hardworking, masochistic people to, <laughs> to microplane a commercial volume of hash. With sieving, you got to get your timing just right with the sort of texture of the stuff and the moisture content and all that and how cold it is and how cold your sieve is. With microplaning, sometimes it's a little easier to work with stuff that does grease or block up really fast on you. Or even if your wash environment was a little bit too warm to where the material wanted to block up or grease up on itself sooner than you could really get it into the right shape or condition. Sometimes in that regard, microplaning can be easier. Um, but man, if, if I had, let's say, arthritis or tennis elbow or carpal tunnel or something like that, I don't think I would be able to microplane. And I, don't, I would not recommend it for anybody to try long term because it is detrimental to your joints and ligaments. Sieving is, is almost certainly the more ergonomic, ergonomic method and more friendly towards people who were differently abled, so to speak. If, if you had a disability of some kind and you wanted to do this for yourself, microplaning might be pretty tough depending on what, what you're working with. Now, you talked about some of the factors that goes into properly microplaning. So what are some of the variables that you have to control to correctly microplane, in your opinion? First and foremost, I'm going to try and go chronologically because I feel like that helps a lot uh, in regard to understanding what you need to do in order to microplane successfully. When the hash comes out of the bag... Your best bet is to either put it into circles that are, for me at least, and this will vary depending on who the person is, their conditions, the hash itself even. I even change this up based on the challenge rating of the hash. So the, the puck that you make out of hash should be sized appropriately to where you can microplane it in one go if possible. That meaning you can get it out of the freezer microplane it. It's not going to melt in your hand before you're done microplaning it into or zesting it into a, into the texture that you're going for. Ideally, it shouldn't be so big also that it's going to crowd up the surface that you're microplaning onto, which for most of us is, at least back in the day, would be parchment sheet lined baking trays that then get slid into a baking rack. So I mean, depending on the hash and how much space I have available to it, that might only be three to five grams per baking tray, right? If the stuff is a little greasier and heavier, it might be a little bit more, but then I'm also going to probably want to make my pucks a little smaller because it's going to have a higher challenge rating on grading it. Other options too are to make like long strips and try to snap them into pieces and things to microplane an appropriate sized volume at a time. But overall, shaping pucks can help you out quite a bit too because then you can shape them so that they don't have rough edges so that they're consistently thick 
so that they wick moisture evenly, so that they grade up evenly in things. Now, for me, that's usually something like a silver dollar or slightly smaller, definitely no smaller than, say, a quarter, ideally like a Susan B. Anthony dollar, if you're, if anybody's familiar with the size, it's a little bigger than a quarter. Usually no thinner than a, maybe an eighth of an inch, because much thinner than that, and they melt or thaw way too quickly. Also, not a whole lot thicker than an eighth of an inch because then they don't microplane cleanly. That would be the main thing about yielding them uh, to make microplaning feasible. The other things that I would do is make sure that you're swapping out paper towels underneath the screen that you yield them onto fairly regularly. Purpose being you don't want them sitting on wet towels or paper towels as you're doing that process. They also need to be kept in the fridge, ideally with another screen on top of them with a couple layers of paper towels over that. That'll help any kind of oxidization from occurring on the pucks that you formed just due to fridge burn or, you know, open moving air causing the outside edges and top surface of those pucks from getting discolored and oxidized. Changing the paper towels out regularly can be handy and you can do it with decreasing frequency. You know, right after you wash, you want probably want to scoop them out, slide the whole thing onto some fresh paper towels or towels, get it in the fridge and let it start wicking. Within two hours, you're probably going to want to do it again. Your next swap might be three or four hours out. Your next swap you might do and then check on it 15, 20, 30 minutes later and see if it's still making wet indents on the paper towels or towels underneath that screen. If you are using any kind of towels too, like you know, sham wow, something like that. <laughs> Make sure that if you are using conventional washing methods that you rinse it thoroughly afterwards with some clean water because you do not want any detergents in these towels that you're using. Paper towels are wasteful, but they can be cleaner in that regard. They need to be bone like near fully dry to begin with before you even microplane it. Once they are no longer moistening the paper towels underneath, they need to be frozen good and solid. And I mean solid before you try to microplane them. Your microplanes also need to be solid. Your environment needs to be cold, as cold as you can get it. Just above freezing would be acceptable if you somehow had that ability. It needs to be as dry of air as you can get it. And you need at least a little bit of circulation once the job's done. While you're doing it, though, you want very still air. And the purpose is that some of this stuff is going to come off of your microplane so dusty and fine that it'll drift, get stuck all over everything in the area, and it'll represent not only loss, but loss that you now have to clean off of working surfaces, off of the tops of your shoes, off of everything but the parchment paper where you're going to collect it from. Once that's all set, you need to work very fast and you might even have to chill your hand in order to achieve it by putting your hand in, say, you know, a gallon or two gallon Ziploc into a pitcher full of ice water or even salted ice water. I'm not recommending anybody do that. At times it becomes necessary. It's probably not good for you. I'm sure if you were talking to a hand surgeon or somebody who specialized in that kind of thing, they'd tell you, yeah, you know, giving yourself mild frostbite and then putting your hand through strenuous activities is not good for your ligaments and joints and stuff. But sometimes your hand just needs to be that cold in order to be able to actually handle the pucks. Challenge added because you're probably going to be wearing gloves if you're being responsible about it. Uh, rubber gloves for the job and then also trying not to grate up your fingers and or the glove into the hash. So there's there's a lot to focus on 
while you're trying to microplane these little pucks. The ergonomics of the whole thing are pretty stiff. You know, it's like you're playing the world's smallest violin in, in a competition with the devil for your soul. You know, you're really sawing away at the thing fast because you need to get that puck done. And you're in a cold environment doing it too, which tends to make your muscles very tense and tight. The other fun thing too is that if you just hold the puck in one place while you're microplaning, your fingers are going to melt their way into one consistent spot. So it's a good idea to try to rotate the puck in your hand after every stroke and stroke a new edge of the puck, re-exposing new, more fresh, more solidly frozen material underneath. That way you're not just grading down the one consistent part over and over again while the back end of it that's not getting graded thaws out and while your finger and thumb melt their way into the puck. Not ideal. So you're basically turning this thing like a gambler might turn a poker chip in his hand while he's thinking about, you know, losing his last dollar kind of thing while sawing away, you know, like you're trying to save your soul in a, in a violin contest and paying attention to where the hash is landing. Because now, now that you got all those pieces in place, you got to kind of typewriter or corn cob this hash onto the parchment paper lined tray and not miss it and also not run your fingers through the microplane because you definitely don't want to do that. You can ruin your whole day plus a tray full of hash that way. Don't do it if you can avoid it. Oh, another downside too to anybody who likes having long nails, you know, and or acrylics or anything like that. That is a no, that is a no-go. Like even having nice nails, you basically need to have some of your nails at the very least down almost to the quick to really <laughs> to really make this work right. Well, I'm really not selling this process, but it, it really does work <laughs> if you don't have a freeze dryer and you want to make some fine hash. I'm just telling you, most all of us old heads that did hash making this way or still do it are feeling it now. It's not, it's not easy and it takes a toll on you. Anybody with experience in a kitchen and not necessarily high end, like I was a head chef, I'm talking like if you were doing prep work for a kitchen, working in a cold environment late or early at night, chopping up mushrooms and bell peppers for the morning service or the dinner service for hours and hours on end, you probably have a little bit of an advantage in, uh, in microplating hash. But yeah, that, that's kind of what it entails in a nutshell. Just attention to details in regard to what the next step is going to require and what the hash itself requires as far as temperature control and things like that go. A little bit of understanding of the thermodynamics of the puck itself, <laughs> making sure it's the right thickness, the right temperature, and that you're not overexposing or underexposing parts of it to cold. Uh, working fast and having a very high pain tolerance. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a labor of love. I know most people that have done it are not doing it anymore. And there's a handful of people that still do it, including yourself and like you said, I'm sure it has taken a toll and continues to take a toll on you, but you do it because I suppose you feel it's like the right way to do it. But also, like you said earlier, it's just how you learned or what you learned and you just kind of continued with it. So it's kind of interesting. One question outside of your very detailed response is how long typically do you have to wait for that puck to be fully frozen before actually taking it to the microplane? Well, I'm going to, I'll answer one question you didn't ask because it is very important for drying those pucks. It's going to depend on the size of them as far as the wicking portion of it. 
if there's small pucks, really small run, you're changing paper towels out very regularly or towels uh, almost to the point of being wasteful. You can probably get them in the freezer within four hours after washing, usually anywhere from eight to 10 hours, depending on, again, on the hash, how big you made the pucks, how much you can swap out the towels underneath. For freezing them, it's also going to vary depending on the size of the pucks. Also, you know, how cold your freezer is. Generally, you can get it done within two hours. I would go up to about four if you wanted to, just to make sure they were really solid frozen before you began. I would try and avoid going too far over four, uh, especially like over six, let's say. After being frozen solid for a time, any ambient moisture inside that hash is going to start to expand and form crystals, potentially damaging the trichomes, things like that. You can also get plenty of freezer burn or oxidization on the hash in the freezer. So try not to leave it too long. However, there's nothing wrong with making sure that that stuff is about as frozen as can be. In fact, I usually pull it out and work it against the microplane lightly until it defrosts just enough to the point where it starts feeling good against the microplane. You can kind of feel a, a sort of shaving feel to it, just that sh sh rather than it skittering over the blade because it's a rock hard frozen thing. And that's kind of what you're going for is, if anything, a little over frozen to begin with run it light until it starts to hit that sweet spot. And then my God, hit the juice, redline it, try and get that thing done as quick as you can. Something else I should mention in case somebody's listening to what I'm saying about this and trying it for themselves. If it starts feeling hot in your hand, if it starts smearing on the blade, if you're noticing big ribbons come off the bottom instead of fine dust, stop and get it back in the freezer as soon as you can because things will exponentially get more and more melty until you have grams of potentially beautiful hash just melting in your fingers and looking like hot peanut butter that you can't recover. That's it. That's it for it. You know, <laughs> you've got hydrated hash, whatever state it's in, that's, that's what you're going to get. But yeah, to answer your question, as little as two, probably no more than four, six at the most. If you can avoid leaving it in the freezer for longer than six hours, you'll, your hash will appreciate it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I'm sure lots of people out there that want to try it out for themselves if they haven't already appreciate it also. So I'd also make this clear. I, I would love to, you know, just drop five racks right now on a on a freeze dryer, especially for uh especially just for bulk raws and like why the hell not, you know? But I would still probably separate some 73 or 70 with isolator bags and or 120 off of certain strains. At the very least, for the head stash, I would separate that for myself 100%, and I would still microplane it for hash, for just full melt hash, because I love that stuff. I still think it's the pinnacle expression of the plant, and there's nothing as complete as the effect of it. There's also something to be said for just when trying to make full melt hash, letting it air cure, like what I'm describing, or air dry. I think there's something to it as far as maturing it, making it a little bit smoother and mellower, specifically when just presenting ice water hash rather than rosin. In fact, if I wanted to do that with stuff that I had worked in a freeze dryer, I would probably take that as long as it was dry and sandy enough, work it through a sieve, at least a little bit of it, and let it air cure for in a nice, cool, dry environment for even just like six to 12 hours, then jar it up. Also find that hash left in a jar for anywhere for like with organically soil grown stuff, 24 to 48 hours kind of hits a sweet spot after it's sat in a jar in the fridge. 
with salt grown stuff, it might be a seven to 10 or even 14 days before it kind of mellows out and hits that sweet spot after being left in a jar in a fridge for a while. But yeah, for ice water hash, full melt, I still think there's something to at least a little bit of an air cure on the product. Okay, cool. Well, I think this is a good time for a second smoke break. You down? Oh, I'm 100% down. All right, let's do it. I'd like to take a moment to thank every person that makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 56 with Fred Morris and to give a shout out to some of our top contributors, including Rezon Reserve in Michigan, Garland in DC, Kevin of Lifted in Dina, Macro Melts in SoCal, Solventless AF and Turp Wizard in Michigan, Nick the Intern, the Chile Relleno Burrito, Meltwalkie J, The Real Cannabis Chris, David of Rosin Evolution and the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino. We appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. So let's talk a little bit about rosin. You brought up soil growing solventless a little earlier. You also mentioned to me privately that some of this material that you've been processing for people as of late, including some of the genetics that you've been giving out to cultivators that have been bringing it back to you. A lot of people just want rosin nowadays. And you know, I think in the historical context of this kind of modern area of hash, you're obviously kind of known for the ice wax for the melt type situation. So even though that might still be your preference, where do you see rosin playing a role in the market and how have you seen that develop? Well, I think a big part of it, a big part of what it's developed in the market at the very least is the ability to mass produce this in a way that people will actually purchase it consistently. Ice water hash of any kind from pretty much any company, even the higher end companies does suffer an issue with things like shelf life, just general fluctuations in quality, partly because the, the grading scale is a lot more subjective, I would say, for ice water hash. Uh, how much residue did it leave and things like that. In general, it, it also suffers from poor smoking techniques. So if you're raging your nail too hot, you're not going to enjoy even the best full melt at all. You, you really need to low temp it and do this, that, and the other. So rosin has made it a lot more accessible for a lot more people to consume a concentrate that's not made using solvents. And while I do think ice water hash delivers more of a full rounded effect, you know, gets you full on stony baloney. And rosin can be a little more akin to maybe a little bit more of a, a kind of skull-based tickling effect compared to the full body thing, like a solvent. It's still a lot closer to the original. I think a lot of people, even if they aren't in it for the raw thing or for the fact that it's, it's prestigious to smoke rosin, appreciate the effect of it more. I know I've, I've uh, given a dab logic pen, for example, made out of non-solvent material to some folks that I know and like who were going on a big road trip out of town. They they reported back like, wow, that was actually really good and enjoyable. You know, I, I would get those on a fairly regular basis compared to these other carts that I'm used to getting. And I was like, yeah, I know it's because you're, you're probably used to smoking distillate with propylene glycol and if anything, back added terps and it's, ugh, right. it's just not the one. So rosin has opened up a lot more venues than just old-fashioned ice water hash. And it's also made it feasible for people who are running just dry material to get something that's even consistently dabbable. Because you know, while commercially, almost nobody's pressing dry 
trim hash into rosin anymore. It is still viable and a lot of plenty of people are doing it at home. People do it commercially still for the purpose of making edibles, for example. So I love that rosin has opened all of that up. I do wish that there was still a little bit more viability for ice water hash. But what you do find is that a lot of growers who are in the know or capable of producing it themselves or who know somebody who is capable of producing ice water hash do occasionally have some made out of their home grow. But it, it's, it is getting rarer and rarer and you generally don't see it commercially just in part because of the, the shelf life issue changes in texture consistency and the fact that there's probably going to be at least some residue, which a lot of the modern consumers are not used to. I don't think it would fly. <laughs> Do you think that the popularity of solventless as kind of an umbrella would be where it's at even today? without rosin coming along and becoming a, you know, the information being out there, like you mentioned to me, and then B having this semi replicable way of doing it. No, I really don't. I think ice water hash, you would still have some purists and people like me who were fanatic about it, that talked about it, but it would be like the, you know, cured aged high end beef crowd. It's not going to be the majority of the market. And because of that, I don't think you'd see a whole lot of people pursuing it commercially. Like I said, just in part too, because of the shelf life issue, rosin can remain a little bit more stable or consistent long term than ice water hash can. So as, as somebody who, like we talked about earlier, needs to get their ROI on any product because the margins are so slim, as in a lot of cases they can be in the cannabis industry. You know, you're not you're not going to go with something that doesn't sit on the shelf for very long. It's one of the one of the advantages as a commercial producer that you would prefer in concentrates versus flour is that flour does have a little bit more of a tendency to degrade over time, takes up more space in storage and so forth than something like a concentrate. It's a way to consolidate and store that crop essentially long term, which is kind of beneficial in some ways. But yeah, rosin rosin made all of that feasible for both the commercial side of it and for the consumer side of it. And while I do still really like ice water hash, and I think a lot more people should give it a shot, it wouldn't be where it's at without that, 100%. And the modern method for making rosin too, uh, I will throw that in. Because there were methods back in the day for separating the oils from hash, but not uh, not in a way that's feasible, replicable, scalable. Right, yeah. That it's true. It's I think that's definitely was part of the formula of, of rosin taking off and, and doing its thing. And obviously the technology has, you know, advanced and improved and there may be some areas where it can still grow or completely maybe even change to some degree. But I think that it's at a point where it's pretty good. You know, I did an interview recently uh, with a guy from archives and they brought up the point that you know, it's almost like, where do, where do we go from here? You know, it's like, has hash, in the sense that we talk about it, got as good as it's going to get? I would say no. I would say no. And I think there's always more, more stuff that people can and would play with and probably will. You know, probably things like trapping and back adding terpenes and stuff, which I'm not a big fan of. But, you know, that hasn't been played with to death yet. People will find ways to try to try and kind of reinvent the wheel. And I do think there have been 
increases in quality along the way. But a, a lot of what you do see happening nowadays is somewhat more marginal increases in quality of execution through various parts of the process and or just understanding how to cater towards what the market wants at that given time through technique and things like that. Increases, of course, in understanding how to cultivate and nurture the plants with an eye for hash, both in how, like, not just in the breeding, but how you care for them and grow them and things like that. But yeah, as far as wild advancements in hash making that you're going to see, I don't know. I think you're mostly just going to see a whole lot of textural changes for the time being. Lots of people trying to make more, I don't know, sauce and diamonds and what, like what I call deconstructed hash, you know, stuff like that. Maybe different types of presses. Who knows, a rolling press or a, a trench-shaped press that pushes it all down into a V. You know, maybe I'm giving away million-dollar ideas right now. But as far as major advancements, I just don't know if you're necessarily going to see a whole lot. I just think you're going to see people people doing it better and better and hopefully being open and honest about what techniques they're using to get there. Speaking of textures, that's actually something that you used to also do with some of your ice wax by letting it quote unquote cake out. And, you know, we talked about this briefly last time and you equated it to, you know, people making now different types of rosin, which is rosin sauce. And it really was about creating a, a familiar texture for the market at that time. Obviously you were mimicking more like the, the hydrocarbons and maybe these as well. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. And part of that was of course, back in the day, in, in no small part necessarily, bad technique. There's some hash, and I still leave the pictures up. I don't care. It was an era of uh, undercured hash, caked up, went kind of waxy textured, and there was a time when that was hot and popular. And some of the waxier stuff was some of the worst stuff on the market, in my opinion. At the time, there were, people were going for all kinds of waxy or battery, chunky kind of textures with their BHO. And in order to detract from that market and make it clear that like, yo, there is a, another way to have that same sort of texture presentation and dabability, I would intentionally grease up hash, take pictures of it in that texture. So I would try and get sandy textured hash. I would try and get somewhat more of a grease textured hash, which would be when it's pocket cured, essentially been exposed to a little bit of at least room temperature to where it congeals. And then once that grease would turn into a more opaque, waxy texture, I'd photograph it at that stage too, just to demonstrate different consistencies of the hash. And also to hopefully mimic some of the hydrocarbons that were popular during the day. Because again, ice water hatch was something special to full melt as a commercial product or as something that people could feasibly make at home was, was kind of out of reach, you know, or an unknown at the time. Not that popular on the commercial market just trying to break that norm by mimicking BHO and things that people would be familiar with. And then, of course, also, like I mentioned, not potentially separating the hash as well as I could or giving it proper cure conditions to when once recollected into a jar or a container for storage, it would then wax out somewhat quickly. And that is one of the downsides of not having proper separation technique. So there is a learning curve for that. And anybody using a microplane right out of the gate, you know, can expect somewhat the same. You're going to have to develop techniques for it, figure out how to space the hash out enough on the tray, disperse it evenly, how much a tray can hold and, 
and so forth. But other times, yeah, it was it was legitimately bringing it up in temperature at times on purpose against the surface to liquefy it and get it in a little bit more of a gooey state. Just trying to make pictures of hash in all different states and shapes. I mentioned to you before, but people still do that today. I've seen people making some, like I mentioned, sauce and diamonds, trying to achieve all different textures of batter and and this and that, whatever you want to call it, uh, with rosin. And I think you're going to continue to see people doing that. But it's it's not so different. It was just a matter of what the preference of the day was and what was achievable with the materials at hand. And so just to clarify for terminology, what I use the word caking out, I think you use the word waxing or waxing out. Waxing out, butter, buttering up, or usually caking out, yeah. Generally take attaining a somewhat drier, crumbly kind of texture. Opaque, usually somewhat lighter and brighter than the starting material, but not always. Would you agree with that? I think at times, and that's kind of part of where I was going with this, and as a non-maker and more just a consumer, I think I have maybe a different perspective because I'm not seeing the material as, you know, fresh per se as, as yourself and other makers. But where I was leading to is, you know, you talked about the water content being the principal kind of reasoning behind that. But is there also at times that you've seen where it's more of a like terpene based thing that is doing this as well outside of the water moisture? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify, I'm talking about ice water hash. So this would be my ice water hash back in the day attaining different consistencies, not necessarily rosin. But yes, terpenes would act uh, as a factor in that. And then you would also have water as a potential factor specifically with your ice water hash, residual water in it potentially contributing to that factor. Just like keeping ice water hash out during changes in humidity or opening up a cold jar of hash causing condensate on the inside, you tend to see water getting reintroduced or too much of it being present inherently adding to that waxing factor in the storage of ice water hash as well as terpene content, yeah. Yeah, again, another reason that I think rosin is maybe a much more practical and hence popular thing, right? It's like it doesn't necessarily carry as much of these factors. Not to say you want to mm-hmm. take cold rosin out of the freezer and open it up, but it seems like ice wax definitely had more variables and more delicacies in, in taking care of it for sure. Yeah, that's that stability, stability factor. And it's something you could educate all your bud tenders on and your bud tenders could educate the patients and customers and you could store it in fridges and send people home with a cold pack and it'd be a, it'd be a pretty big process on the retail end. Yeah, for sure. And I think there are some companies that are attempting to do that, but you know, it's, I respect it. I do. It's just, it's tough. So going back to now that you're making more rosin for people when processing their material, do you wash the material any differently? Do you use any kind of difference in bags when you're pulling for melt? Or are you washing the same way and then just recombining for rosin? So if I'm going to pull for melt, generally the demand is substantially lower than it is for the rosin. And of course, there's going to be a diminish in yield from what I even pull from rosin because there's going to be a yield ratio of hash to rosin. 
So if I am pulling for melt, it'll be off of the first wash of the material. So just to be clear, material can, can be washed multiple times depending on what technique and what equipment you're using. So I'll do an initial wash to try and pull some of the best and most readily separated heads and make sure that generally the grower gets all of that back. If any of that is to be separated for ice water hash, it would be on the first wash and it would be through a bag separation. Usually, like I said, between 70 or 73, depending on if I'm using an isolator or a different branded bag and, you know, 120 to 150, say, range, depending on the strain. But I would just pull that specifically for the purpose of melt. And that doesn't happen very often these days. I'm going to be honest. That's usually if, you know, I can take something for myself out of the deal. Because um, <laughs> not a whole lot of people are, are in demand for that. But a lot of the time, it depends on the size of the overall batch also. So if somebody's given me quite a bit of material to run and I know it to be a good yielder and uh, the client desires it to be done, I'll separate that by micron. And for that purpose, you can kind of isolate it by grades. Uh, you know, generally, it's not, it's not going to be the biggest difference, but there is some definite differences with certain strains, especially in effect, in terpene content, like what terpenes are more pronounced than others. And sometimes even how smooth of a smoke it is between the microns. So if it is a larger run, it can justify using more bag sets. However, if I'm processing for a pretty small grower, which I have no problem doing at all. In fact, I find it to be, while not necessarily as material-wise rewarding, I, can, I find it more overall rewarding, often processing for small growers, home growers and things. A lot of the time that will be full spectrum. So the bag set might look like 38 on the bottom because I use an isolator bag on the bottom. Uh, they do come in 38, which is handy, up to a 160 bag or if the strain warrants it because it's something that hits in the upper register really hard, say a, a nice cookie strain that yields well in the upper end or power nap or something to that effect. I might use a micron bag that's a little bit higher in number, like a 190 on the top to filter out some of the uh, material and just press everything literally between 38 and 190. Reason being, if somebody only has a, a couple of plants where they're not very big to try out, or I'm washing, let's say, different phenotypes of the same strain in order to help phenotype it, I don't want to spend too much time and effort on something that's going to be such a small yield. But also, every time it's going to touch a bag, every time it's going to touch the spoon, every time it's going to get scooped out, there's a potential for some loss. So by trying to divide it too much and then press it separately as well, when the yields are already potentially going to be relatively small, you reduce what you're actually yielding for potentially the client that much more by dividing microns. Also, if executed carefully, full spectrum uh, from fresh frozen, carefully pressed at about as low and slow attempts as you can comfortably get away with, it's just fine. If the material was grown well, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it's the best representation of everything that the plant has to offer rather than just, you know, these are the immature heads and maybe they have a racy high. And then here's the really fat heads. It's neat to divide it like that. But a lot of the time, especially for small batches, it makes a lot more sense to just full spectrum it, especially if the material was quality. And going back to the first wash where you sometimes pull for melt, Typically, how long is that cycle, time-wise? 
It depends on the material and if I am familiar with its performance. Like I said, there are some that if they're really greasy and or, you know, this, that, or the other, whatever might be the case, they may be a little bit more prone to contamination. Also, how much of a concern is contamination to me versus, let's say, completeness of yield on the first wash? If I need to make sure that that first wash overall is a high yield for the client and or for just the general purpose of reaping that strain, and I'm confident that my conditions ambiently are cold enough and my water is cold enough and that the material is friendly enough, that being it's not so sticky that it's going to clump up at even slightly warm temperatures inside my bags after I've drained into my bags, that I can thoroughly spray that material out. So if it is slightly contaminated, at least I've got a good shot of cleaning it up. My first wash might be as long as 15 minutes. Now, just to be clear, I am using not a professional stainless steel washer like a lot of people are using nowadays. I'm using your old-fashioned, actually a Koblenz brand. Uh, gravity draining washing machine. I've modified it a little bit, but overall it's just a stock machine. It's made in Mexico. You can get them for like 200 bucks and they're gravity draining. So you don't have to worry about cleaning out the internals, the pump and all that stuff. You just have to be able to clean it out like a normal large appliance, but it doesn't have a lot of internal loops, pumps and garbage that you can't get to to clean. The nice thing about them is they're affordable and they're definitely usable on home scale, but they do need to be operated elevated of your bags. They need to drain downward into your bags, which means running it on a countertop, sawmill, something of that nature. But they're lightweight, they're storable. You can run two at once if you're talented and actually put quite a bit of material through them at a time, I would say, depending on the material, up to about 2,000 grams. So they are a great uh, unit for somebody who's operating at home. But that's about how long I can run a first wash for. If I'm really going for quality or my conditions aren't ideal and I'm worried that if I run it too long, I'm not necessarily going to be able to produce the quality that I want, which is an unfortunate fact of running at home. I'll do as low as about 12 minutes. And that would also apply to a particularly delicate material that I don't want to beat up too much on the first wash. The other thing, too, that I might do is balance the load according to those factors a little bit. So you can add more ice, uh, a little more water, and balance out how fast of an agitation you're actually getting in the particular machine I'm using. Not unlike balancing a load of laundry so it doesn't, you know, bump and bang against the side of the washer. Yeah, that makes sense. And we've touched on yield a few times throughout our conversation. And I'm always curious to hear people's take on like what yield means to you. So when you're talking about a hash yield, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, some of these genetics, maybe the Gary Payton, maybe not. I don't remember, but it was like 6%. Another was like doing 6-4, like you guys want to trade genetics, cool. So at this point, what do you quantify as that yield? Like what ranges? Is it all the raw hash? And then the second part to that question is like, what do you see as a viable yield range now for something that you would call like a hasher? That's going to vary depending on the scenario. You know, I mean, you might have somebody who's making head stash, they want something of high quality, or they can ask an incredible price for this particular strain to where something as low as I would say about 2.5% could be viable. Now, probably a little higher than that if you're, you know, on the commercial, on the commercial level, 
because you do have a lot more overhead that you need to account for and taxation, like we were tax burden we were talking about earlier. But two, and I, when I say 2.5%, I mean after that fresh frozen material has been washed and turned to rosin. Now that's on the very low end for like a commercial setting, it might be closer to three, 3.2%. Probably going to have to do a little bit higher than that to really make it consistently viable at the current pricing that I see out there for a lot of rosin. It is getting more affordable, which is great. But at the same time, you probably are going to have to start running strains and making sure your process is tight to make sure that you're getting the yields needed to keep up with uh, where some of the pricing is going. But I remember they used to charge, you know, 140 for a gram of certain brands, and they might still be doing it out there. I haven't, I haven't bought from a dispensary in quite a while. But an ideal yield, in my mind, like commercially viable, would continually run it pretty comfortably at 4% maybe on the lower end and 6% is great. You know, if you can get 6% consistently out of a strain, you should take it and you'll hear people brag about much higher and it is possible. I've run a cookies and cream before that was doing close to 8% after making rosin, which was absolutely incredible. If you can get 8% hash from fresh frozen, not made into rosin yet, just hash, that's a good strain. You know, 9%, uh, almost unheard of on fresh frozen being made into ice water hash. So, and that's something a lot of people kind of don't understand is we are talking about water weight. So if we were talking about dry trim, I would expect to see 16%, maybe 14% on the low end from dry weight. But then the hash, uh, anywhere up to like 22, 23, 24%, maybe even yield on dry trim into hash. That hash is going to press out though at 60% or lower into rosin. So you're going to get a pretty low rosin yield and it's not going to be, it's not going to be as oily as the fresh frozen material. And it's also just something that's not generally commercially viable, but a lot of people are doing it for edibles. So again, fresh frozen, like all said and done, completely made into hash, completely made into rosin. I probably wouldn't run a strain again if it did under 2.5, maybe. Commercially viable, probably four to six percent, and you can see higher than that. It is doable, but yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm coming from on that. Well, man, I appreciate you hanging out with me this long. Uh, I'll start kind of winding it down now and shoot some questions all over the place. One of the things you mentioned regarding rosin is if you were ever in a position to be in a commercial setting making it, uh, you would prefer having a lot of small presses versus having a big one or a couple big ones and doing more volume at one time. And that although you realize that would, you know, need more staffing, you think that would be the best way. Can you tell us why? Well, there's, there's a few reasons. One of them is sometimes, especially if it's your first time pressing some material or even, you know, grow to grow, wash to wash differences in the same material, same strain, let's say there can be differences in texture and performance and things like that. And it is kind of nice to be able to do a test press and to mitigate errors that do happen press to press. So if you were to have a blowout, things like that. The other reason being too, that sometimes presses fail. And man, when you bank on one big press and base your whole commercial operation off of one and it, it breaks on you and it's expensive or time consuming to fix or replace, that can be unfortunate. So having a fair amount of hand operated, you know, like crank operated rather than um, generally compressor run presses 
you, you're going to have less problems. You're going to have a quieter workshop, probably a safer workshop, in my opinion, than having all this, just all the material to have to work with. And smaller presses tend to be a little bit more controllable. Now, it's not to say you can't control a great big press with all the pressure in the world behind it, running off a compressor and everything else. But you do tend to have a little bit more of an incremental pressure application with larger, more aggressive presses like that, rather than a smooth application of pressure, as well as a little bit less tactile feedback. That and, again, if some error happens, like the bag starts slipping out of the your little chute that you folded, or a blowout occurs, Lord forbid, or anything else like that, having it happen on a larger scale tends to create more loss. And in general, I think it gets a little bit easier to control the variables sometimes at a smaller scale. You might very well have an employee who's assigned, like, this is your press, and he knows what temperature the bottom plate versus the top plate should be, or her her little quirks, if you know what I mean. Just in general, I feel like you would see more consistent quality on a on a scale than you would just trying to do it in one monstrous press. What's an ideal amount of rosin to press at one time then? Ooh, that depends on your press, how confident you are, uh, how much experience you probably have working that press in that particular rosin. I would say for your average person pressing at home, I would, if you have a decent amount to work with anyway, to where you can size up and down, I wouldn't start with more than a quarter, maybe, you know, seven grams if you don't know how it's going to perform initially. Uh, or if you're not that familiar with your, your press itself. But on the home scale, I think you could step that up to an ounce depending on your plate size. You can definitely, if done right, fit an ounce pretty comfortably on like your standard home press, which might be two by four to three by five. It, it can definitely be done. I probably wouldn't run too much more than that at home unless I was really confident with what I was doing and I had scale to really press like that for your, just your average at-home hobby guy. Commercially, shoot. I mean, I, I would like to say not much more than that, but pressed over and over again relatively rapidly. You know what I mean? Probably up to about 40 grams before I'd start saying, you know what, we're probably pressing a little too much, which I've definitely done more than that. I think I might have a video on my page where I'm squeezing like 98 grams at once, way too hot. I got it at like 205 or something. And it's just rocketing out of there with bubbles and stuff, old school. So yeah, that was too much. That was an example of doing too much, too much. <laughs> I guess you won't know until you try, right? Kind of thing. Oh yeah. But I would encourage people, if you don't know your variables, just start small. And you know, I wouldn't say don't find out what your upper limit is because it is good to know where that is, but don't do it with your most valuable run. And if you're going to do it, my God, it's once that press is on, sometimes it's a little bit like it, you know, you've suited all your astronauts up and you lit the fuse on the rocket. You can't do anything about it. You just have to watch and wait and hope to God everything's right. So it sure pays to take your time and prep everything carefully, especially if you're doing humongous presses like that. Shame to have issues when you're, you know, throwing way too much on the press at once. It sounds like sound advice to me, so I would likely follow it. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned this before we took our last smoke break, and it's something I wanted to clarify with you, actually. Have you ever freeze-dried hash? No. No, I've been researching. 
I've been studying and I can't wait to try it. I'm going to probably take Humphrey Hashish's lesson. I'll tell you that. That sounds pretty handy. Yeah, I think lots of people been, so it may be a good idea. So on that note, is a freeze dryer in Fred Morris's future? God, I hope so. I mean, if, if somebody who makes a quality one would like to sponsor me, you know, I got a few other expenses in mind coming up, but <laughs> man, I would sure love to uh, not be microplaning into the wee hours of the night sometimes. <laughs> That's fair after hearing, you know, what it takes to do it. And, and you've been doing it quite a while, so I can see why you would want to transition. Maybe not fully, but at least have that option. Do you see yourself working in cannabis in the long term? And if so, do you feel like you'll have to, to some degree, compromise to do so? Yeah, yeah, to both. I've thought about other stuff, and it would have to be working with plants or fungi or something. Not that I don't like people, you know, you're, you're all wonderful. I love everybody, but nobody has got shit on these plants, man. And I, at some point I wouldn't care if it was, uh, apricot trees or, uh, green beans or microgreens or something that I just would have to, or, you know, oyster mushrooms or whatever kind of mushroom. It would just be nice to work with plants. And cannabis is a hell of a lot of fun to work with. The fact that it, I mean, you can tell it evolved alongside us, just the way it's so workable, the way leaves can be plucked off the way that they can, the trainability of a plant. I mean, if ever you wanted to know what a trail seed looked like, look at cannabis for sure. It's it's a joy to work with and work on. But in some ways, yeah, I'd probably have to sacrifice. There's a lot of cannabis quirks, you know what I mean? Like, um, just the way the industry is sometimes it can be, it can be rough. It can be turbulent. The laws can change and regulations can change. A lot of things can change in cannabis really fast. It is a, uh, it's not the most solid ground to stand on, to be honest with you all the time. But if I were to do something else, it would definitely still have to be probably working with plants. They're just too much fun. They're too pretty. Yeah, and speaking of fungi, I've seen you've been working on something recently. What can you tell us about that? Oh, that's just fun. Colorado lets you uh, grow various types of fungi, including, you know, the magical variety. And it's something that you can do in a small space, which I also like about hash making. I also like about the way that I curate, you know, moms, rotate them out, make clones. I do that in a very minimal space. So being able to make do with spaces like that is a whole lot of fun. If I'm not going to bloom flowers, I, I'll, I'll fruit some fungi. Why not? And, you know, it's really rewarding. I think it's actually when I started really looking into what people are doing nowadays with modern breeding of that, it's been really fascinating. People are making some of the craziest things I ever did see. And it has its own unique challenges. You know, you have to be very sterile at times and handle things very carefully compared to cultivating plants. But wow, is it a lot of fun. It makes me feel like a scientist. And for a guy who kind of squeaked through high school, that that's pretty cool. That's funny and cool. Can you tell us about something that you enjoy doing outside of cannabis for your free time or kind of personal thing? Oh, one of the things is funny, too. If you met me when I was uh, a young man, you'd probably ask me nowadays if we met back up, oh, do you still play guitar? 
And the answer would be, yeah, I definitely do. That's something that I've done since I was pretty young and enjoy that quite a bit. In addition to that, I, well, you know, everybody's got their own hobbies. I don't use it for evil, but I do what I like to call lock sport or non-destructive entry, which is the practice of bypassing locks through the use of specialized tools and things like that. And that that's actually a fun time. It's kind of like a fidget toy. It can be kind of relaxing a little bit and at the same time, give you a bit of a rush when you successfully do pop a lock. You feel like MacGyver, you know? We talked about the fungi. Dude. There's so many things. I ferment ciders, so that's one thing that I really like. Um, I love cider, but I hate how sweet most of them are. And I had a homemade cider one time. I thought it was amazing. So I started learning how to do that myself. And I've been making ciders for, I don't know, five or six years now. And they're they're coming out really good. Is that something we need to plug for Fred Morris? I, You know what? If I had my, my license to produce <laughs> ciders, if I had a little cidery, oh my God. But no, do not. I do not sell my ciders ATF. You don't need to come to my house. I don't sell <laughs> my ciders. Never have, never will. If you had to name three people who have been influential to you specifically in the hash realm, who would those people be? Three of them, huh? Okay. Obviously, if anybody who knows me would know, and I'm probably going to, somebody's going to be like, oh, fuck those guys. Matt Rise, definitely. He was very influential in regard to putting out the rolledup.org thread on IceWax. That's where I made the move from bad old style hash to making something that could be called full melt. Also, going out there, working with him and things like that, I did learn a substantial amount about making hash. And he has put out quite a bit of information and does deserve credit for that. So that would be a a pretty huge one for me. Number two for me, and this this is kind of ass backwards, but it would kind of be all the people who reached out to me for help. Because in typing up responses to them in like these long, detailed ways, which I'm probably excessively doing right now, the uh, like verbally though, but I would type out these extensive responses and they made me think through the what's and the why's and how I was doing things, you know, like it really made me think through the process in a way that would be digestible if I was trying to receive it. And that actually helped me understand why I was doing what I was doing and identify inefficiencies in it or contradictions in my method that could have been a lot better. So believe it or not, it would be all the people who like reached out to me because they wanted to learn how early on and I had to type up my thoughts on it. Ironic, I know, but that that definitely played a big role in me, me kind of coming to conclusions on that. Ooh, and then number three. That one's tough. Yeah, that one might be might be a little tough for me. Influential hash person for me. Dang. Yeah, I might have to come back to you on that. Shoot. That caught me off guard. No, it's all good. I appreciate you, you know, making the attempt to answer all three, but it's understandable sometimes. No, the third one's just a cloud of people, you know? That's kind of a cloud. (laughs) Like I'm like this person, that person, then the other. I mean, honestly, I'm thinking of somebody in particular who was kind of a hater. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to do better (laughs) than just to stick it to you. And I don't want to name that person because that I don't want to be immature like that. 
that's the that's the honest answer for number three. <laughs> but I I can't really give it to you. <laughs> no, that's fair too. But a hater has never been one, so that's a that's a first and an interesting one. And and I thought the other response was interesting too. You know, in that you know teaching people, you you really learned a lot yourself about what you were even trying to explain or maybe teach or or whatever that was. So that's kind of cool, you know, and, and interesting. So the final question. If you could hear from someone else on this podcast who hasn't been on in the past, who would it be? Well, first, I want to say thanks to Ross Paul for recommending me. Uh, I think he does some really good work. Always watched his breeding projects. He's, I've run some of his, like his coffee before. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Would, couldn't recommend strong enough. But if I were to recommend somebody, it would be somebody that I helped out a little bit. And I almost feel guilty saying that because he was already really good. He just had some issues with the caking and I gave him some tips on microplaning and he shouted me out and it felt so good to know that I played even a small role in him, you know, reaching what he felt like was his potential with his hash making. And that would probably be, if you haven't interviewed him yet, Hash Tree Mason. Have you talked to him yet? I have not. Okay. He's almost like me in a sense. He's been a little bit quiet, a little less quiet than me. Um, but he's a great guy. And he actually, you know, he sent me a case of some special beers from his neck of the woods back in the day for giving him the advice that I did. And his grandma's cookies and stuff, even like I've always looked at that and thought, damn, you know, I, I'm tempted to be that asshole being like, hey, do you ship, bro? Because I would love to smoke some of that. <laughs> grandma's cookies. No joke. So I would honestly recommend him and I never got to talk to him on this level either. So it'd be interesting to hear you grill him the way you did me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way. Yeah. But that's cool. That's a recommendation that we had never received before. So yeah, uh, you know, I'll see if I can make it happen. So I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. And and honestly, it's been a, a blast for me to, to hang out with you and, and chit chat. I, I had a great time. So I hope you have two. And uh, yeah, yeah, is there anything else you want to say that before we sign off, basically? Uh, no, I would say thank you for hosting me and having me, considering me for this. Sorry to everybody who's like, man, this guy could just talk for way too long. He needs to <laughs> shut up. Thanks for stomaching it, if you could. Shout out to my family if they're listening, you know. Hey, <laughs> I'm on podcast. <laughs> and that's about it. Cool, man. Yeah, likewise. I appreciate you coming on. I love the shout out to your family. I hope that many people make it through because I think this is a, a cool interview and, and lots of good information. So again, thanks for coming on. If you want to follow Fred, you can do so on Instagram at Fred Morris. We appreciate you hanging out with us this long and we'll catch you next time. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.